Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the 49th Annual Kentucky Council of the Blind Conference and Convention. Yeah. I am your president, Matt Selm, and uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, Also, we're live here in Louisville, Kentucky, and streaming around the world on ACB Media Channel 8, and also later later on the Radio Storm. Uh, For this block of programming, we'll be here from 1 to approximately 3 Eastern, and we're going to first hear from a speaker and then from the Office of Vocational Rehabilitation. All right. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce Clint Manco, who is the branch manager at PNC Bank in St. Matthews. And he's going to talk to us about avoiding scams. So, Clint, when they call me asking me if they want to buy my property for cash. I'm assuming that is a scam. So <laughs> thank you, Clint. You know, as as a manager at a local branch, we see a lot of fraud. A lot of fraud comes across and we see a lot of our customs customers who are victims of fraud. And so I really wanted to talk to you all today about some 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 of the common frauds, some of the warning signs and what to look for. And uh, you know, these are real real true issues that we deal with every day. And so I want to share these with you. I'll share with you some real life stories about how this actually came into fruition and how in some cases we've been able to help the customer to avoid being scammed. And so then I'll give you some best practices. But, um, you know, it used to be that if if the bank, someone was going to come in and steal money, they'd come in and rob the bank. Well, you know, banks lose millions of dollars right now, and it's not from robberies. It's from people who are who are coming in with fraudulent checks, fraudulent IDs. They're stealing from mailboxes. They're getting customer information. So, you know, I, I want to share some things uh, and some stories here with you. Um, one of the scams that uh, we don't hear about as much anymore, but it does still occur, um, is the IRS scam. And so that's where someone just starts randomly calling people, you know, and they start, um, you know, posing as an IRS agent. And, you know, they'll usually threaten you or scare you and tell you that you need to go into your bank and that you need to withdraw a large sum of money. Uh, They'll oftentimes tell you that you then need to go to UPS or FedEx and take this money because, you know, they've discovered an error on your tax return. And that if you don't take pay this overage or this amount of money, they're going to come take you to jail. And. One of the things that they always do is, you know, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone that you're being called because, the, you know, keep it secret. And uh, that's a common theme in a lot of the scams we'll talk about today is that they don't want you to talk to anyone else because they don't want anyone else to try to talk you through the situation. Um, so... What I will tell you about the IRS, they're never going to call you to try to collect money over the phone. They won't do it. 
Um, they may call you to set an appointment to come into the office, which I hope none of you all ever get. I hope I don't get that phone call either. But they're always going to try to send you a letter in the mail first. Um, so a funny story that happened with this. Um, fortunately, we haven't had customers who that I know of who have been victims of this. But I had a customer who was in the bank. Uh, this happened a couple of years ago. And when he was in the branch making a deposit, his phone rang. And uh, fortunately, he, he, he was aware of this scam. And so I hear him on the other end saying, you are? Okay. You're going to send the police? Okay. Well, I'm at the bank right now. Let me give you the address where the bank is. And you come get me right here. I'll just take the money out here. They hung up the phone. So, uh, <laughs> and the police didn't show up, by the way. So that is one that we don't hear as often, but it does happen. And I do know that, you know, there are, are people who fall for it because you hear IRS and you immediately think, oh my goodness, you know, they're, they're coming after me. So, and the thing that I want to really stress to you guys is that, um, you know, these folks who are doing this, this stuff, they prey on anyone. So I've had so many customers who have over the years fallen victim to some sort of a scam and said, I don't know what happened. I, I would never do this. I would never do this. Even the savviest of people fall for these kind of scams. And it's because, you know, they find something that you're vulnerable about and they prey on that. So, um, you know, that they go after anybody, young, old, it doesn't matter. They don't care. So um, another scam that we see that has really been showing up a lot lately is that there's a computer virus scam. And so a pop-up will appear on your screen if you're on the computer, and it'll tell you that your internet protection has expired or that your computer has been infected with a virus uh, a lot of times this pop-up, will it'll, it'll ask you to call a number um, or click a link, and then it ends up, you know, if you click the link, it ends up sending you to a chat room. If you call the number, someone answers on the other end, and they're basically telling you, yes, your, your internet protection is expired. There's viruses on your computer. They're posing as Microsoft. Just let let me help you. Let give me access to your computer, and I'll go in and I'll help you. I'll clean your computer. Well, they do more than clean your computer. In some cases, they also clean out your bank account. And so, um, I will say that we have had a number of customers who have fallen for this scam over the recently, um, and you know they go in. They get access remotely to your computer, and then they try to sign on. They hope that you've got your banking information saved, you know, so that you don't have to key in your user ID or your password. And then they'll go in and try to either sell some money out of the account or send an online payment or something like that. So um, this is something you got to really, really, really be cautious of um, anytime that you... Uh, allow someone remotely to access your computer. So uh, be very careful of these pop-ups. But, um, you know, we've, we've had customers who unfortunately have been victims to this lately. And, and unfortunately, by the time they get to the bank, 
you know, sometimes it's too late. Um, so I, I just want to make sure that you guys, and you may have heard of that, but I just, I want to bring awareness to any of these things I can think of while, while I'm up here. Um, an, another scam that it's coming. How many people shop at Amazon? You know, probably a lot, right? Yeah. Well, now, and I, I absolutely, the automated calls, uh, the text messages and email claiming to be Amazon.com, and they want you to call them, um, because, and they tell you that there's suspicious activity on your Amazon account. And so they may even provide you with a fictitious reference number and claim they're working with your bank. And then they'll transfer you. And I say that loosely. They'll transfer you to your, to your bank. So that way that banking employee can help you make sure that you're not, your account hasn't been compromised. Well, what they do is that banking employee is someone sitting at a desk right next to that person and they're getting your account information so that they can try to go in and compromise your account. I had a gentleman, this was about two weeks ago. Um, my particular branch, we have a podium at the front door when you come in. And so where we can welcome customer, every customer that's coming in. And a gentleman came in and he was frantic. He was just a nervous wreck. And he said, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, they've got, they've got to hold my account. They're, 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 they're getting, you know, just really nervous. And so, you know, I need to talk to somebody. I need to, I need to stop this. Okay. Okay. So he has a seat and I hear him, you know, I'm waiting to get him in contact with a banker so we can help him get this. And I hear him saying, no, 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 I'm at the bank right now. No, I don't want to go out to my car. No, I'm okay. I'm sitting in the bank right now. I don't need to go out to my car. And so at this point, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm getting a little apprehensive. And I'm like, sir, I said, are, are, are they trying to get you to, to go out to your car and talk to them? He says, yes. He said, and he explains the situation to me. This is Amazon calling and da, 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 da. And they, they're saying that they're already working with your bank. And I said, why don't you tell them you're at the bank and the branch manager wants to talk to them and hand me the phone. And so he does that. And then the next thing I know, I hear him saying, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> they hung up. So, um, so sometimes it just a matter with some of these folks of, uh, you know, they, they're relentless. Now I'll tell you, you know, and they will continue They'll call you back and they'll call you back. I don't think he got any more phone calls back because, you know, he told him he was at the bank. But um, but that has frequently been happening. Um, one of the scams that is really uh, this is one that I think has affected probably um, a greater deal of my customers, at least at my branch. And it's it's known as what well, we call it as is the grandparent scam. Okay. And this one, um, I, I've got a couple stories I want to share with you on this one. But if you've not heard of this, this is basically where you get a phone call from someone, oftentimes claiming that there's an attorney. It's an attorney on the other line. Uh, sometimes they'll actually pose and try to say that it's the, your grandchild calling and that they've either you know, driven out of state or they've, you know, gone out of the country or whatever, and that they're in jail. They've been involved in some sort of a crime where they're at or a car accident. 
and that this attorney is willing to help them, but uh, he needs grandma or grandpa to send in cash some money so that way this attorney can help him get out of jail. Um, they're also, please don't tell mom and dad. I don't want my mom and dad to know. I don't want them to worry. Don't say anything, please. And so it's, you go into the branch. So what they're trying to do is get that person to go into the branch, the bank, withdraw a large sum of money. And it's usually five or $10,000. Um, so it's not, you know, $100. Which, I mean, it's a, a large sum of money. And then FedEx that money to a Dropbox or a mailbox or a, some sort of drop-off somewhere in another state. And then when the attorney gets it, the attorney's going to make it all go away. Well, unfortunately, that's not what is what happens. And it's also not your grandchild in jail. And, and you know, in some cases that I'm going to share with you, I've got three cases where, where within the past year, my branch and I have specifically dealt with this issue. And I want to share, let you know kind of what the different results was in all three of these. The first one was basically a customer that came in who said she needed to withdraw a large sum of money and would not. We knew who the customer was. She would not let us. She was not very forthcoming. So what I will tell you is I can't speak for every single bank. What I will tell you is that when we have a customer that comes in who withdraws a larger sum of money than what they would normally would typically be in their transaction history. We will try to ask, not because we're trying to be nosy, but we'll ask a few additional questions because it's our job to protect our customers. And so she was not very forthcoming. Um, we noticed that she had just gone to another branch before she came to our office and withdrew about $3,000. And she was coming to our branch to take out another seven. Um, so we, we know this is our customer. We identified her, um, try to ask some additional questions. She wasn't very forthcoming, but our hands are kind of tied. If our, if our customer's there, we know who she is and she wants to withdraw this amount of money. So we did give her the money. However, we saw that there was someone else on the account with her. And so the someone else was her daughter and we reached out to her daughter and we let her know, I just want to let you know that your mom is just in here. And she seemed kind of nervous. Uh, she wouldn't really give any information. We're just concerned because there's a lot of fraud that, that we do see. And, and unfortunately, a lot of times elderly customers are victims of a lot of that. And so she went looking for her mother. She called her mother. Her mother was at the post office getting ready to send that $10,000 in the mail to this attorney. Fortunately, daughter got there in time and stopped it. And then mother explained, well, here's what's going on. And, you know, the child was not out of state. The child had not been in an accident. There was nothing that had happened. Someone was totally posing um, as her grandchild to try to get her to send money. And unfortunately, in that particular situation, um, because we did intervene, that customer did not lose that $10,000. Had that money 
you know, we could have, you know, just, well, we know this is our customer. That's kind of, you know, her issue, you know, but fortunately there was someone else on the account that we could reach out to, you know, without breaking any sort of privacy. Um, and we were able to prevent her from, and that customer, as you can imagine, was extremely grateful after that. Uh, we had another customer who came in, uh, who had come in and got $5,000 the previous day. He was in our drive-thru. Um, the teller happened to notice that he was in. He was requesting $10,000 on that day in cash. We asked him to come in. The assistant manager uh, had a conversation with him, um, explained the situation. No, no, no. I- I'm positive. You know, I-, I understand. Thank you for looking out for me. I really do appreciate it. We even explained there are scams like this that are going on. No, I- I'm positive. Something about it just didn't feel right still. And I went out to him and I said, you know, can I, I said, I just want to make absolutely certain. I said, I just have a really bad feeling about this. I said, do you mind sharing with me what your, your look, because you took a large amount of money out yesterday. You took a large amount today. You don't typically do this. Is there something that's happened? Well, I will tell you, my grandson called. He's in jail. Da, 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 you know. And I said, well, um, I said, have you called his parents to confirm where he's at? No, he told me not to. I said, I, I promise you, this is a scam. I said, I promise you. And so he made a phone call to the grand, you know, to his children, I guess. Uh, grandson's fine. Grandson was not in jail. And unfortunately, this poor man had sent $5,000 the day before. Now, he didn't send another 10. We were able to catch that. But he, you know, they had called, got the money, called him back the next day and said, well, it's going to cost more than we thought. So we need you to send another 10. So um, I want to share with you guys a couple of quick tips. You know, those are some really, you know, they're heartbreaking stories. And the last thing we want um, is for anyone to be a victim of a scam. And so I'm going to kind of give you some some suggestions, some cues, some clues to kind of look for, um, you know, when you're dealing with customer, when you're dealing with folks. And if it doesn't sound right, the first thing I'll tell you, if it sounds to be too good to be true, it usually is. You know, if you get a letter in the mail that says, hey, you just won the lottery and you didn't buy a lottery ticket, you know, be careful, (laughs) obviously. Um, um, If you weren't expecting to receive it, it's usually not legitimate. Okay, so if you weren't expecting to get a check in the mail for $10,000, don't deposit it. It, It's probably someone that's there is a reason why you got this phony check in the mail. Um, if you get a call and the person's trying to get you to do something, and we've already discussed this a little bit, but if they tell you not to tell anyone it's going on, it's probably a scam, right? Um, if you're what I call your spidey sense, if your spidey sense is going off and, you know, someone's asking you to do something, run it by somebody else, ask, call your bank preferably and say, Hey, you know, I got a call, you know, and, and someone's asking me to do this. Is does this sound right? Does this sound legitimate? Um, 
build a relationship with a banker, regardless of what bank you bank with, whether it's PNC, whether it's Fifth Third, whether it's whoever, you know, build a relationship with a banker and someone that you can call on, that you can call up and say, hey, you know, and and that you you can get a pretty quick turnaround response. You can just run a second opinion by. And then the last thing I would say is if your bank does ask you questions, while those sometimes can come across as intruding or intrusive or come across as nosy, they're probably asking you because they want to make sure that you're not a victim of a scam. And so um, be careful out there. There's, there. There are a lot of things that, that go on with scams. Um, the other thing I would say is be careful when, I don't know how many people drop mail in a blue mailbox, you know, the, the big mailboxes that sit out there. But there's been a lot of mailboxes that have been broken into lately. And people are getting in there and they're, they're stealing checks and they're altering checks. And you write a check for $200, they change it to $2,000. And it goes to your account for $2,000. And so, you know, just, uh, yes, yes. So they somehow they wash that check. Um, I'm not smart enough to do it. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't try it. But you can usually tell, but if it's going through, you know, some, what they're doing with those checks is they're opening bogus accounts somewhere else and they're depositing your alter check into an ATM. ATM's giving them credit for the money. They're taking the money out. Then the check finally goes to your account for the incorrect amount. So, you know, keep an eye out on, on checks going through your account, you know, because, um, that does happen too. Um, and um, I just want to thank you all. You know, I, I hope that I was able to bring some information to you that can help you, some things to look for, things to look uh, look out for, um, you know, just as you're doing your banking. But um, I really thank you very much. Matt, Carla, thank you for having me here today. I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. As uh, on a typical check, you have a routing number and account number. Somebody gets a hold of your check, they go online, how much damage can they do to you? Well, that all depends upon how they're using that routing and account number. So the thing about a check is that technically every time you write a check, whether it's to LG&E, whether, I mean, you are in effect sharing your, your account number, your routing number, it's on that check. So um <sighs> The biggest thing to be careful of is to, you know, when you're writing checks is to make sure that you're examining your statement, make sure the checks go through for the correct amount. The good thing is if a check is altered or a check goes through, for example, through, you know, electronically, uh, you know, in that particular situation, if you call your bank within a reasonable period of time, you're not going to be liable for that type of transaction. So that's something that was beyond your control um, that the bank isn't going to hold you liable for versus these other some of these other situations where I mentioned where the, the customers came in and did cash withdrawals and then sent the money themselves. So you are still covered under protection and liability of the bank. So the most important thing is to notify us in a timely manner so that we can at that point, because if that happens, we're going to recommend that you close that old account out, open a new one, and then we're going to just dispute that charge for you so we can get your money back. I was just going to say, uh, uh, 
in our condo association, we had the unfortunate experience of having exactly what you said happen. They got into the mm-hmm. treasurer's account. They got a routing number. They got a, uh, uh, a bank number. And uh, the bank stood behind it. Yes. We had to take, change all our account automatic withdrawals. We had to change Social Security. It was an absolute nightmare. So what you're saying is 100% true, and I pray nobody has to experience it like I, I do. I agree. I agree. Thank you. Yes, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of these, but the Social Security Administration has, um, you always hear about scams through them. Have you had any um any dealings with those people will call you and say they're from the social security administration and ask you to do stuff. Yes, we have. And that kind of goes along the lines somewhat of the IRS scams, um, you know, where they're posing as government agencies. And in some cases, um, and I'm not a hundred percent sure if this if this is what happens with the social security scams, but sometimes they'll even ask you to go to Target or Kroger and purchase gift cards with your with your money and then read those gift card information back over the phone to help offset your um, you know, the the issue or the charge or what you're dealing with. And so um Yes, we we have run into those as well. Not as often, though, as some of the other scams that I was mentioning. Um, Clint, yes, I get. I mean, we all get a lot of junk mail, junk email. Well, junk mail too. But um, if if you have a if you have an internet a, account, an email account, you're going to get junk mail. Sure. And uh, but I've noticed. That that seems that there's a, uh, more of the um, email where it's written up to look like it's coming to you as an invoice for something. Uh, n- email with Norton's on it is really that. I mean, I think they must send ten out every day. Right. Um, but uh, do you have? Any sometimes they look very very real. So, do you have any um, tips on what makes it what makes it real and and something to look for uh, to know that it is a scam email instead? Sure, absolutely. So, um, and and sometimes you'll get these emails. Um, another one from a bank as well. You know, they kind of fall in the same line. You know, um, oftentimes there are some things such as there's several different fonts on the email that you're receiving. So where they have copy and pasted certain information from other documents to try to make it look legitimate, a lot of times you'll see misspellings on those emails. That's another common thing to look for. Um, And they're also oftentimes worded a little, mm, you know, yeah, a little strange, you know, it's like the way that you read it or the way that it sounds is not how you would expect to receive a letter from from a Norton or from a bank. And so those are really the kind of the and obviously, of course, if you're not expecting a, an invoice, you know, from Norton, then, you know, in that situation, what I would do 
is, you know, actually, you know, maybe Google search Norton's, you know, their, their customer service number, you know, their billing department and just give them a call, you know, but, but a lot of times the, those are some of the things you can pick up on due to the, the misspellings, um, the different fonts or the way that it's worded. It just does, doesn't make a lot of sense. This is Sue Ellen, and um, I was wondering, I get a lot of these calls that purport to be from from um, Social Security or places like that, and they even say, this is a recorded line. Are those legitimate, or are they still to be treated as suspect? I would, I mean, uh, I would say that with almost certainty, they're not legitimate. Um, I don't know if anyone has tried calling Social Security lately, uh, but there's time, you know, I've helped customers call to try to switch direct deposit over. And, and at times there's been a two hour wait. So I don't think they have any time to be calling any of us and leaving messages. And, and even even so, I don't think they're looking to get any additional phone calls because they're they're they're, you know, the wait time right now. But no. I, I would I would say that they're not going to be making those type of phone calls. I think, in my experience, they also coordinate, um, you know, try to reach you via mail as well, uh, U.S. Postal Service. This is Debbie Detheridge. And um, also, um, is it a good idea, you know, you get all that uh, mail and all of the, you've been pre-selected uh, for whatever, uh, I usually shred all that stuff and might be also a good idea to have a shredder and was wondering if you could give your contact information. Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, I would definitely recommend uh, not uh, just throwing it in the trash hole. You know, so I personally shred those documents. My bank that I work for has a box where we will actually collect shred documents and uh, we we work with CentOS. They come by and pick up the the bin once a week, and then they actually destroy those documents. You know, for it's not just for customer for employees, but it's also for customers as well. So, um, and then I can let Carla know. I guess maybe would that be the best way to leave my information so that you could distribute that for, or I can say it now. Okay. So, uh, my phone number. Is 502-212-6280, and that gets you directly into the PNC branch, and it's going to be option three. So I don't have a direct line, um, but I that is the the easiest way. I can also share my email address with you, and that is Clinton C L I N T O N dot Manco M A N C O at pnc.com. Um, on the bank side, you have a P, um, a bill payment section. Mm -hmm. Is it safer for us to use the bill payment and the bank, have the bank send out a check someplace than it would be for us to write a, our own check and mail it? Um, when we send out a bill pay, if we can possibly send it electronically, that's what we're going to do. So likely if it's going to uh, sometimes if it's going to to pay another bank or a credit card or something like that, we'll try to send them that way if we have a relationship with the other bank. But otherwise, 
it's still going to contain your banking. I won't say that it's any safer per se. It's probably the same amount because it's still got your the routing number and the account number. Um, but if we can possibly send it electronically, we'll oftentimes try to do that. But if the bank sets it out for, say, $100 and it mm-hmm. comes out $1,000 out of our account, the bank will be responsible for That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Yep, absolutely. And I also want to make a comment on some of these uh, phony emails we get. Uh, I'm the treasurer of an organization, and I get these phony emails from the supposedly from the president asking me to make arrangements to send money. I noticed that if I click on her name, it will have some kind of a phony email address. Mm-hmm. It's not her email address, which I know what it is. Yep. Hi, I'm I'm Joel. Um, Hi. I was curious if you thought this was a good practice and if there's more that I should be doing. Um, so what I generally do is if it's a phone call, I hang up and look up their number online and then call that. Um, if it's an email and they say contact this number, I go look it up anyway. Is there more we should be doing with that or is that pretty good practice? Um, I would say that is definitely one way to to exercise some caution with that. Um, so when you're getting some, either the phone call or the email, are these companies that you have a, a pre like already have a relationship with? So like, are they, is it your bank or is it, um, you know, know a different like utility company or something like that or is it just you know some someone that just randomly contacts you via email or via you know phone call okay so i'm just very cautious anymore um you know so getting any kind of random phone call really i'll be honest i unless i have a relationship with you know, that company or whatever. And then even still, I'm a little hesitant to to give too much information over the phone. A lot of times I'll say, well, let me call back and speak to, you know, I'll call because I'll already have a number, you know, on file where I deal with this company. And I'll say, I'll, I'll call back and, and speak to someone there. So I, I really, do, if I'm not familiar with the company or the individual, oftentimes I won't, even, I won't speak to them. I, I'm just, I've seen too much of this happen where I'm, I'm a little too leery now about, you know, talking to anybody. Hello, this is Deanna. And um, this has happened to me twice with two different banks, but um, the bank called a couple weeks ago and said, this is your, this is your bank and your bank account has been compromised. Let press one for more information. And so I, I wasn't sure what to do. And I thought, well, because it says my bank, I better, I better do this. So I pressed one and then they said, enter your account number. And I thought, no, because if, 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 if you know that my bank account has been compromised, you know, the account number. So I didn't. And then I called Chase and they said, oh, there's nothing going on. And there wasn't. And so I'm glad I didn't do anything else after that. But that's just, that was really scary because it actually said the name of the bank um, it did not say my name, and I think if they're going to call you and know that there's something going on, they might right. know who you are. And that was that was sort of a thing that got me thinking it might be a scam. Anyway, I just wondered if you all were going to contact someone about suspicious activity, how would you do it? So uh, we would actually 
um, a couple of different ways. One, if we had an email, we would actually notify the customer that you know there there has been some unusual activity. Please call the call call this number, which would be our fraud department or our loss prevention department. Um, we're not going to ask you to click a link. We're not to key in your information or anything like that. Um, so when we call you, we're not going to call and, and ask for your social security number or things of that nature. Now, um, and again, I, I'm I'm a little more um, a little less hesitant to respond to those type of calls in that situation. Um, you know, I would I would still. That's one of the reasons why I suggest that you know get familiar with your bank and your branch. So that way, when things like this happen, which it sounds like you did do, you know, you hung up, you didn't give that information, and then you called your your local branch or at least the number that Chase has on file for you to call, and they were able to confirm it. And so, um, I there's too many folks who are impersonating banks and you know IRS, Social Security, Amazon now. I, I my preferred method is thank you for the information, and then I I go back to calling the numbers that I have on file, either the number on the back of my card or my local branch, just to verify that information. So, okay. Um, one thing that I've taken to doing now because I heard about the yes scam um, is if places call and I don't recognize the name of the person who's speaking to me or their voice or something. And they just say, you know, is this Susan or is this Su-? Well, if it's, they say this is Susan, I, that automatically makes me wonder because very few people call me that anymore. But if they ask, you know, anything like that, I'll say something like, who wants to know or um, what's this about? I make sure not to say the Y word until <laughs> I verified who it is because once they have that, then they can have fun, I am told. Well, and I will tell you, I, I think I heard about that where they're recording your voice and they're trying to, you know, use you saying yes. And at some point in time, you know, they're, they're enrolling you in some sort of a service and then you play back the recording and you've said yes. Um, we, for, we haven't run across that at, at, at our branch, at least. Um, but I will tell you, um, I, personally, if... You know, if if I don't recognize a number, if it's not in my phone book, I don't ju- usually answer it, and I'll let it, I'll let it go to voicemail. And I figure if it's important enough, they'll leave me a voicemail and go back and check it later. You know, because uh, I, I just I I just don't even want to pick it up if if I don't if I don't recognize the number. So, um, just too many, too much out there. It's scary. Right. This is Carla again. Yes, ma'am. Um, I have come to the conclusion that there is one point, especially during the day, that any call that you get from an unknown number is a scam. And that is during dinner time. <laughs> because you can hardly eat dinner for the phone ringing yeah. and somebody wanting to buy your house or, um, you know, uh, tell you that you've just had someone, you've had suspicious activity on your Amazon account. Right. Yeah. Oh, yes. Your car warranty. Now, I haven't gotten as many of those. They must really <laughs> have figured out I don't have a car. Uh. So, <laughs> but, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Oh, yes. And now it's open enrollment. 
So we're getting calls yeah. from your uh, a person who will say they're with Medicare, whatever, whatever, on a recorded line, of course, because it's very official. And uh, and then they'll say, and do you have Medicare? Well, if they already have information, why do they need to ask? You know, right? But I, but but don't you think, Clint, that if it's from uh, a number that asks for a person or asks for your asks for you that you don't know, that the best thing to do is just not respond and just hang up. That that's normally what I do. I yeah. I agree. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. You don't even need to you ask what they want. Yeah, because once you engage in a conversation, you start that conversation, you open that door. You know, they're going to probe and they're going to try to find something that they can do to yeah. to snare you. Yeah. So, thank you very much, everyone. I really appreciate your time again. It's been a pleasure sitting here with you today and, and having this discussion. Thank you very much. Let's give a big hand for Clint. All right, so we're going to sail on the high seas of vocational rehabilitation and hear from the executive director of the Office of Vocational Rehabilitation, Cora McNabb. And then uh, after her, we'll hear from Gay Panel about independent living services and services at the McDowell Center. So, Cora, all you. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Good afternoon. I want to thank you for having me. So I appreciate you inviting me today. And I always say this, we very much appreciate um, this organization and your advocacy for individuals who are blind on a local level, on a state level, and on a national level. Very, very much appreciate it. So just wanted to give you an some overall overview updates on the agency quickly um, and then maybe talk about some specifics and then as he said Matt said gay is going to talk about independent living and i'll let her talk about the mcdowell center as well i will say i came from the mcdowell center this morning and was able to go back into the part of the building that's being renovated and it's very we're excited uh, about that So right now we have around 415 employees statewide. Um, We have 48 vacancies in which um, that is certainly an improvement over the number of vacancies that we had probably about a year, year ago. Um, So we're open and open for business and providing services. We're on a hybrid schedule. Uh, some of this, some of the staff do not telecommute at all. And then we have other staff that are in the office three days and have the privilege of telecommuting two days. Um, but they know that it's based on a business need. If there's a, a need for them to be at an appointment somewhere or in the office, then they are required to come in the office. But it is a nice perk that we can offer to the staff. It's also a nice nice tool the managers have if someone isn't performing, you know, then we know that we can pull that telecommuting uh, schedule and until their performance does improve. So it's kind of a win-win all the all the way around. 
First of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about the federal level and our federal uh, oversight agency, the Rehabilitation Services Administration, uh, that fund our program. And recently I was at a state VR directors conference where we had uh, several presentations from federal, the federal employees uh, for the Rehab Services Administration, or as we called them, abbreviated RSA. And they expressed two very grave concerns to all of the state VR directors from agencies that are combined and then also you know, to all the agencies that are also the blind agencies. Uh, The two concerns that they had was one over the expenditure of funds. And with COVID, um, COVID was a huge contributing factor to this because while, as you all know, many of us were in our homes for over a year um, when they shut things down. And so agencies did not spend the money that was given to them, and they returned a lot of money to the federal treasury. And Or um, in our case, we did not return any money, but we have a large amount of what we call carryover funding. Um, when we get our grant award, we have two years to spend it. And we have found ourselves in the last two years at um, having the full amount of the prior year award um, sitting because we haven't expended it. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few few minutes. And so I can tell you that there's certainly not a budget issue for us. We were glad that we did not return any money, but we still have uh, a large amount sitting, that, if, for lack of a better word, in the coffers, an old phrase. So the other um, concern that the Rehab Services Administration uh, expressed was the workforce participation rate, and that's just the number of individuals that are going to work. And, you know, there are a lot of things that have affected that. COVID has affected that. You guys, I know, have heard about the great resignation and that during COVID and during the shutdown, a lot of people um, reevaluated their priorities. And for a lot of them, it just wasn't work. And uh, so um, that is the other concern. And they were very open and honest with us that on the Hill in Washington, the legislature is looking at the VR program, and they have asked um, RSA for individual states uh, statistics, both money and um, program statistics. So those were two um, areas of, of great concern to them. And, you know, the we think for us, the workforce participation rate has a lot to do with engagement. A lot of times we lose someone out the front door before we ever get them out the back door in, in a job for many um, different reasons. So those are a couple of concerns that I wanted to make you aware of. The good news um, for us, uh, in April, we were able to give all of our staff a raise 
Um, and we, we worked hard on that for the last couple of years. We did an, a national study of every position in our agency, all 400 and some. It was a huge undertaking. And we were able to give raises to our staff. And then, of course, if you watch the news, you know that in July, there was another um, 8% that was given to state workers. And so all of our staff are making above the midpoint for salaries. We did have a few people that if they were already making a little bit um, up close to that midpoint or above that did not get a raise, but everybody got the 8% in July. And so we feel really good about the wages that we're paying our staff. Uh, another thing is that we have all categories open. We have nothing, no categories closed. We don't have any cost sharing of any kind. And so, um, that's a, that's a good thing and a positive thing for the first time in a long time. We're also in the process of purchasing a new case management system. Uh, when COVID hit and we had to go home and we started working from home and delivering virtual, some virtual services and taking care of cases at home, we realized that we were not prepared and our staff did not have the resources that they needed to, to work remotely. And so we have, um, upgraded and purchased a lot of laptops for staff. And now we are in process of an, purchasing a new case management system, which is a huge undertaking and is requiring a lot of time. Some of us are in two and three meetings a, game, a, a day. Um, all, uh, all of the division directors and directors and a lot of the managers and some of the staff are also engaged in those because it's the current system that we have is about 17 years old and it's kind of a homegrown system and it does not do everything for us that it needs to do. And then we have a lot of capital projects that are going on at the McDowell Center and the Perkins Center. The buildings are older and they need a lot of, a lot of different um, repairs. So right now that, um, I'm sure a lot of you know at the McDowell Center, the residential unit is pretty much gutted out and we're doing a lot of remodeling in there. In the upcoming year, the, the, there are three focus areas that we will have with uh, across the agency and one is staff recruitment and retention. And like I said, that has gotten a lot better since we gave staff raises. We we only, I think, had one resignation this month and we hired four people. So if your wages are pretty competitive, then you're able to to hire. The, the areas that we are having the most trouble recruiting for are those specialized positions uh, in blind services and then also deaf and hard of hearing. Um, I really felt sorry for our deaf and hard of hearing manager. Um, she was down so many staff and she was covering caseloads all over the state um, in the last year. But she has been able to add some VR counselors and um, we have been able to add some additional 
staff in blind services, but we are still um, re- in recruit recruiting uh, for some of those positions. And that will continue to be a focus of ours. And not only just the recruitment, but doing things that so our staff know how much we appreciate them and we need them. You have to keep people motivated. And that means a lot to them. Some For some people, that's as much as a raise is. The other thing we're going to work on are processes. Um, we're going to take a long, hard look at what uh, <clears throat> what keeps us from getting things done, getting done qu- quickly, uh, paperwork, all of that. And so we're going to look at streamlining some of the processes. And then the third thing is awareness. Um, so um, we're going to work on our out- outreach materials, making people aware of the services that we provide. So um, I'll give you um, a little bit of some statistics. Um, first, I'll start with overall, the entire agency. And I, I looked at the current statistics. I didn't go back from the last two years. I start, and as you know, our 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 finances are on a federal year, which is October to September. We operate on a program year, which is um, June, uh, July, and August is the first quarter of the, I mean, sorry, May, June, and July is the last quarter of the program year. And then we also operate on um, a, a state calendar year. So we have all kinds of calendars and tracking. But what I'm going to give you statistics for today have been since January 1st. Um, so it's not a complete year, and we're getting ready to finish out the calendar year, and so these numbers will go up for the calendar year. But since January 1st, the entire agency has served 38,491 individuals. And of that 38,491, 47% of them are are, um, potentially eligible students. One of the things since we have been required to provide pre-employment transition services is we've seen a huge shift in the number of adults that we serve um, because we have to set aside 15% of our money for students. Um, So now we've seen a shift in the number. uh, We're still serving more adults, but just barely with 47% being students. Um, this is a good number to look at because be, since January 1, we have had over 11,000 new referrals. And so we need our numbers to go up because our numbers went down in COVID like everything else. We've taken, um, of those new referrals, about 7,000 of them we've taken applications on and around 90% of those were were um, determined eligible. There are over 4,000 individuals that are in a training status. That means they're either in a secondary school, you know, career tech ed, over uh, um, on the job training. 
And we have around 1,200 individuals that are job ready now looking for employment. Over a 1,000 have um, graduated with credentials, their associate's degree, their bachelor's degree, their master's or graduate. And we have close to 3,000 individuals that have gone to work, making an average of $24 an hour, working about 34 hours a week. So all of our numbers are starting to go up, and that is um, certainly very important. One number that we are working to improve is that successful closure rate. Like I said, that was one of the things that on a federal level, they are really scrutinizing. So right now, the the rate is about 49%. So we're not very happy with that, and we'll be focusing on that moving forward. And like I said, a lot of that has to do with um, how we engage individuals that come in for our services. One thing that I think is interesting when we I look at specifically the 18 VR counselors we have for the blind um, and, and their services, their successful closure rate is 23%. And that's where we would like to be overall. So there is... Um, they're actually doing a pretty good job of keeping individuals engaged throughout the process. So we st- we still have 18 VR counselors. That's the same number we had prior to the merger in 2018. Um, the 18 counselors right now are serving around a thousand individuals. So that's that's down um, from what it was pre-COVID, but we're we're starting to climb back up, thankfully, which means they have an average caseload of about 56 individuals, which really isn't too bad. Um, that's probably a, a good size. Um, of that number of individuals, around 100 of them are students those potentially eligible students that they're serving. So, and we do have see an increase in referrals since January. We've gotten 305 referrals, and about 72% of them were determined eligible. We have 167 individuals that are in some type of training status. Um, around 60 individuals are currently job ready and there were since january we've had 29 that have graduated with their bachelor's master's graduate or um, a high school diploma that were in the program so there's around a hundred have become successfully employed and average earning of 18 dollars an hour and 33 hours a week and like I said, the closure rate um, is uh, very good. Only about 23% of the people are exiting without a job. So that's good to see. Um, we're not happy with the numbers yet, but we're, we are happy that we're seeing an increase in overall. And I hope this time next year, um, as things improve that we'll see more increases across the board. You know, with with COVID and, and staff vacancies over the past two years, it's been really 
difficult, um, but things are definitely improving. So I, I know Gay's going to talk a little bit about the McDowell Center and the, what um, Heidi Kesterson has shared some numbers with her. But Helga asks that I let you know that we anticipate opening up the McDowell Center in early spring. We're shooting for March. The contractor was there on site today and talked to to me a little bit. Uh, We have a waiting list of individuals that are uh, waiting to be that first group of residents in the dorm when we get it open it up. And we are planning to have a grand reopening event. So um, in so that people can come in and ha- we'll have an open house there. They are participating in a community of practice on progressive employment to increase um, employment outcomes for individuals that are blind and visually impaired. And so she wanted me to make sure that um, you all knew that that was a special project that they had going on. So, and I'll be glad to take questions. Paula, could you tell us a little bit about the about the progress um, and what's going on in the vending program? Is that um, in vending? Yeah. Yes. In, sure. Was this enterprises? Yes. The the vendors, as many of you probably know, were really hit hard uh, during COVID because when businesses shop shut down, uh, they're People were not coming into their snack shops or purchasing, you know, drinks out of machines or coming to the cafeteria. So that's been very, very um, difficult um, for the vendors. And there were some, you know, relief funds that were available that uh, the vendors received. Um, is on a federal level that we dispensed. And then also um, there were some other things that some of the vendors were able to take advantage of, like unemployment. And um, I forget the other program that it was. I think it started with a P. But anyway, um, the vendors have had a very, very difficult time. Um, We just recently... um, had one of the vendors that uh, transferred from the transportation cabinet cafeteria to the LNN building downtown. And so the staff uh, worked last week in, in transitioning over that cafeteria in downtown Frankfurt and it reopened this week. Um, you know, the IRS building up in uh, Covington used to be our largest vending location. And the IRS, uh, you know, sent everybody home and they have decided not to bring a lot of people back. And so it will go to only vending up in that area. So we've had some switchover of, of vendors there as well. And we're looking at um, new locations for vendors, but, you know, as you can imagine, um, until the economy picks back up and the cost of products and supplies and, and slow shipments, we're very carefully looking at locations to see if they're feasible for a vendor to make a living there. So 
you were mentioning an effort to strategically move blind people into employment. Who do we talk to to get into that? The assistant director's name is Jennifer Wright, and um, she's in in central office in Frankfurt. So that is probably who you need to speak to. This is Adam. And how many active vendors are there, uh, Cora? Just, you know, have a location that are active. Right now, around 33 active vendors. Mm -hmm. You know, and we bid a lot of locations out, had no one to bid on them. And so we've, um, you know, assigned other vendors. We have vendors covering more than one location. Yeah. Uh, Cora, has it, in your opinion, as the executive director, and you kind of really have a probably the highest overview of the whole or OVR, with the great need for employees, and it seems like there's four hiring signs everywhere, do you think that has resulted in it being easier for folks to find gainful employment, or do you think the the rate of employment is still about the same? Well, I think for us, our, when we've posted positions after we increase salaries, we have more people showing up on our registers, but sometimes they're not, they don't have experience in the area that we wish they would have experience in. So I think we've seen an We've seen an increase, and that's gotten better since we gave the raises. But I think overall, um, it's still it's still an issue, and especially, like I said, for specialized areas. But Cora, I think Matt was also asking about: is it more difficult or less difficult um, with the situation where people? Everybody has shortages of employees. Is it any less difficult to place a blind person today than it has been in the past? Or are we still, you know, that would be basically experiencing the employer being unwilling to hire a blind person? Oh, sorry. I didn't, I misunderstood your question. No, I I think employers are definitely, it's a more open market. And employers are more open to hiring all people with disabilities than they were before the pandemic. Um, I think that we, that is something that we've experienced. We've had a lot of employers reaching out to us. Cora, so, this is Debbie Detheridge. And I've heard some um, mixed uh, answers on this one. If someone is, let's say myself, is working and I need just some... Uh, mobility training or someone needs, you know, just one service, is that possible or do you need more than one service now to like get a counselor and get services? Well, with all categories open, I think that it's certainly worth calling and, and asking and applying for services. I think it would depend on what that service was. But, I mean, if you needed orientation and mobility training to maintain your job, then I think that is definitely a service that you would need. I just have a follow-up for Debbie. <laughs> um, so is there, 
you know, there used to be for different categories, you needed X number of services that were needed in order to be served in a certain category. So is there a category? I guess I guess what my question would be is what are the requirements for what would be category four, which would be the most open category, the one requiring the least the category least four is is I hope that I say this right because I should have brought those with me, but it's for one's functional limitation and one service. Ah. Okay. That that answers the question for me anyway. If when I get back, I look it up and I'm wrong, I'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> One functional limitation. So that could be um, low vision or blindness or whatever. And one need. So that could be uh, I need I need one thing for my job or one thing for my mm-hmm. whatever I'm asking for. Yes. Okay. Could be mobility, communication, you know, uh-huh. could be something that would be the function, and then the service could be orientation and mobility. Gosh, Cora, there there was a day we both remember when there was nothing that could be served because there wasn't any money except the most severe disabilities and needing what three or four services. It was really hard to get services. So yeah. things have really opened up in the yes. last several years after the merger. Okay. Um, yeah, I have one question. Um, now, I think it's great that they have agencies, employment agencies, working with the folk rehab counselors to help get people placed in jobs. But why are we having an agency that has no experience working with blind people, with totally blind people, um, handling getting, uh, trying to get blind people employed. Are you talking about a community rehabilitation provider? Um, I guess that's what I'm thinking. That's what they're called. Um, like they do um, evaluations and they, help fill out resumes and stuff like that. Yes. Well, I would hope that we are making sure that the providers that we use have the needed skills. But I would suggest if there are some, if there certainly are concerns on someone's part that they would talk to, to their VR counselor about that and let them know. That progressive employment project that Helga and them are working on actually focuses on training providers. Another question is, uh, in this uh, computer stage that we're in, this uh, generation, are y'all wearing any visually impaired or blind person that basically any job that you get, I don't care if it's labor, transportation, board of education, factories, there's going to be computers involved everywhere. Uh, you're not going to get away from it. Uh, are y'all pretty much letting people know that now? That technology is yes. very important? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I come across the experience at my job, and, of course, we have, each workstation has computers. I'm not a computer person. But somebody came to me one day, and they said, Chuck, these computers, you can enlarge in the print on them. 
and went up to the monitors. You can just swipe the screen and make the letters real huge. So the company told me, they said, if they found out, they said, well, since you can do that with our computers, then you can put in your own information now and uh, you know, check in and out and stuff. But it kind of made me feel good that the co- computer system of the company already had that capability, and the owner did not even know that of yeah. the companies. I'm sure it did. Uh, yes. There you go. <laughs> yes. Thank you for your presentation. Um, it's very comprehensive. I do have one question. How many programs do you have that are relegated for senior citizens, and what approach do you use to enhance the skills of senior citizens that are not looking for uh, employment or going to school, but they need uh, some specific assistance to function uh, better at home and play? Well, we do not have an age limit on the VR program. So, so, well, I should say we don't serve students younger than 14, but we do not have an age limit. So we serve individuals in the VR program and, and Gay is going to talk now and she's going to talk specifically about the independent living older blind program. So I think that will answer your, a lot of your questions. But, you know, I'm 70 now, and I'm working, still working. And so VR um, serves individuals um, that, you know, they can come to us that even though they're 70, 75, 80, if they still have a desire to work. And now thank you to the group for also inviting uh, me to speak as well. Uh, it's always a pleasure for me to speak about independent living. I feel very passionate about this topic, so I look forward to an opportunity to speak um, about it. So I'm going to start with some pretty basics uh, because there may be some folks here who are not familiar with our independent living program. Um, we are um, known often as ILOIB, and uh, we are a branch within the division of uh, blind services within OVR. And so those initials stand for independent living and older individuals who are blind. And so um, I will say uh, that sometimes that older uh, designation can be very misleading uh, because that program starts with people who are age 55. And um, I'm, I would imagine that I would have agreement in this room that 55 is not all that older. Uh, it's a younger number all the time. And so, uh, but we're talking about folks who are that age. Um, so the independent living um, ILOIB uh, division works with people um, who are basically of all ages. So as Cora said, we're starting with teenagers. We can start um, there. And then we are working with people who are considered to be seniors. And in the OIB part of our program, um, it's our privilege, I think, every year to serve at least two or three people who have reached age 100 or more and who are still um, living as independently as possible. And they're still requesting those services to assist them. Um, so... Every year I look for that statistic because, um, you know, what a privilege to meet those people. Um, they're inspiring to see what they're accomplishing and what their goals are. Um, so they're, they're unique to us. I think the other thing to know about independent living and OIB is that we are unique within OVR as a whole. 
because we are the program, as the gentleman in the back uh, made a little reference to, we are the program that does not necessarily have an employment goal at the end of our services. So the question might be, can people have an employment goal? Yes, they might have an employment goal. Maybe they will come into independent living first, receive some basic training to help them manage their daily living tasks, and then move on into the VR program. Um, Or maybe they have actually entered into the VR program, and while trying to get established in employment, um, it's discovered that they have some sort of a barrier to their independent living, daily living task. And so, you know, it's very hard to be successful at your job if you're not very successful in your home. And so um, we might start then with a person who already has an employment goal, but is uh, trying to overcome those barriers. So our goal then is really very simply stated in that we're trying to assist people to either maintain or improve their abilities to perform daily living tasks. Um, We usually provide services directly within the home environment. Um, Some people will ask us then, you know, what does that mean, your home environment? Does it mean that you have to, you know, have your name on the deed? Is it considered to be your home environment? Um, What if you happen to be living with another part of your family? Um, You know, what if you're maybe residing in... Uh, some sort of residential center. Um, all of those things are, you know, the way we define home is where you live and where um, you are trying to be as independent as possible. So wherever that might would be. So during the last couple of years, um, we've adjusted our service delivery model to quite uh, a bit. For those of you who have known us a long time, you know that pre-COVID, we were 100% in-person direct services. Then COVID struck and, you know, how do you manage uh, an independent living program now that, you know, we were all at home? So we uh, adjusted to a 100% uh, virtual remote service delivery model. Um, And then here comes like the third year around and things are a little bit more open. We're going back into offices. So now we have adopted a a very much of a hybrid, hybrid approach where we are back in person and also still continuing our remote virtual offerings. Um, So when someone comes to us, um, part of the process is to find out how they would like to receive their services. Um, At this point in time, some people are still choosing to receive only remote services. They're not comfortable with someone coming into their home. So we are accommodating that. Other people have gone strictly to, um, you know, in person. If they can't have it in person, then they don't want it. So we're we're doing in person for for those folks. But the nice thing about it has been, I think, is that by being able to do uh, a hybrid, um, we probably can provide a little bit more to people because now our counselors have the ability to not only to be able to provide that in person when I can come out and see you. But um, during times when it's not advantageous to go directly to that home due to geography or bad weather or whatever it might be, we still have the option now of continuing service delivery through our remote services. Um, So speaking of the people who are going to deliver those services, there are currently nine um, independent living counselors uh, located throughout the state. Um, so if you're statewide, I want to tell you where they are uh, so that 
you'll know how closely uh, you might be located. We are in uh, Paducah, Bowling Green, Elizabethtown, Somerset, Louisville, Lexington, Covington, and Pikeville. So we are literally Paducah to Pikeville at this point in time. Um, and um, we cover every single county in Kentucky. So it doesn't matter where you might be residing. It's a good opportunity to tell me, uh, for me to tell you today that I did not have to travel alone today. It's one of the few times that I didn't have to make this uh, road trip myself today. Uh, our Bowling Green counselor uh, came with me. So she's here also, Chance Grows. So if any of you all from that area would like to meet her um, personally today, she she is here. Um, of those nine that I mentioned to you, three of those counselors um, have started within the last six months. So Cora spent quite a bit of time talking about what personnel has been like. Um, it's been a hard thing in the independent living program. Uh, we got down to some very small numbers um, with, with staff. So we have three people that have been here less than uh, six months. Um, we're really excited about that because um, two of those, of, of the three, are located one in Somerset and one in Paducah. And those two regions happen to be two of our busiest regions um, in the state. And so to have both of those vacant at the same time was quite the hardship on our program. And, and our numbers, our reporting numbers, um, show that, that we did not have uh, someone there uh, the last a year it um and it took a year just for um kind of perspective it took a full year to fill those positions and as cora mentioned that was with us out recruiting posting over and over and over again uh, and it took a full year to get someone there um i think that um it's also though really positive to notice that we hired an additional counselor for the Louisville office. So we had been at one counselor in the Louisville office for a long time. Uh, for those of you all who have a lot of history, know that we at one time had a three-person office in Louisville um, and got down to one person. And so we now are back up at two. Um, and with our uh, vision set for the future, hope to be able to get back um, to that full capacity again. But we're excited to have that second person um, there for sure. So even being short-staffed last year, um, we had 497 independent living cases that were documented uh, for physical year 22, and we operate off of CORA's federal physical year, so we operate October 1 through September 30th. So 497 um, cases were documented during that period of time. Though Of those um, folks being served, they represented 96 Kentucky counties. Um, so the six counselors that we did have working hard last year uh, still got in a lot of, of um, miles and a lot of people. Of the 497, over 400 of those people served were 55 and over, again, going back to the gentleman um, in the back. So uh, a high percentage of our cases are people over age 55. Um, two of the main things that we do um, is to provide fundamental skills training and also a connection to other blindness resources. So if someone's new to the blindness world, 
um, and comes to and speaks with one of our counselors, one of the primary things we would do is to try to hook them up with other resources um, that they might not know about at that point in time. So that's a little bit of, of our um, kind of the basics of things. Uh, I wanted to kind of give you an idea of a couple of the other highlights that we had. Um, everybody's been aware of the Eastern Kentucky flooding and the devastation that we saw there. But one of our program highlights was um, that in Eastern Kentucky, our counselor that's located in Pikeville, the various emergency management teams reached out to her directly. We felt so happy that that they would track us down and reach out directly um, to us. And they had our counselor to go with them as they made visits. Um, they took her to uh, shelters uh, where people were staying. They took her to individual homes when they went to um, make visits to people who had received um some sort of notice from the emergency management team. And there she was able to meet um, with people who some of them had had our services in the past. And so she was able to help start to get them reestablished if they had lost um, their technology. Like one person mentioned the importance of technology. If they had lost their technology in the flood, then she began helping them to find ways of getting that technology back, whether it was directly through us or, or through another source. Um, but interestingly enough, she also ran into people in these shelters that had never met us before. So she found some uh, visually impaired people in those counties that were needing our services. They actually needed our services before the flood, but because of the flood, they found us. And so there was some good that came um, from that. I think one of the more interesting things that she was asked to do is everyone, I'm sure you saw, um, the news reports where the um, travel trailers were brought into Kentucky and put in the campgrounds and those kind of things so that people had temporary housing, um, temporary being kind of a loose kind of word in this situation. But one of the things that the emergency management team asked her to do was to come out to those campgrounds and do an evaluation of those trailers to see how accessible they were going to be for visually impaired people to live in. And so she was able to give uh, the emergency management team some pointers on what would be needed um, there if if visually impaired people were placed in those trailers. So uh, we were really proud of the fact that they would reach out to us and counted us as having the expertise needed for what they were accomplishing. Um, another one of the highlights, I think, of our uh, program year is um, we are kind of ahead of the curve a little bit with the agency in that we have done a tremendous amount of work on our outreach. Uh, we have lots of new outreach materials uh, that we are using. Um, we've got all kinds of stuff with our branding on it. Uh, the Independent Living Program has its own logo now. We have our own little branding that's going on our materials. So if you get something from us, you're able to spot it more immediately uh, of where it's coming from. Um, we've got a new brochure that we've got in now who should be getting printed real soon um, that's going to give more explanation about who we are and where we are and how to contact us. Um, so that's one of the things we're actually really proud of. And I, I must brag a little bit um, on people like Chance and the others. The, that first year that we spent in COVID when we were on lockdown um, and just, you know, trying to find out, one of the things that we did was spend a lot of time that year on developing outreach. So when we came back out of um, those lockdowns, 
we were kind of up and ready to go. We had things and we we knew where to take it to. Um, so I'm really proud of the fact that we are a little bit ahead of the curve on on that. So what's going to be new this coming year or the year we're currently in now um, for independent living? Uh, Cora's mentioned our new case management system. Um, we are right there in the, in the throes of that. Um, you know, like everything else in this world, there's upsides and downsides. Um, so I'm really brave to mention in front of my executive director here that there's a downside. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the upside to this is that for the first time ever, the independent living program is going to be fully integrated into the case management system. So um, it really uh, puts the independent living uh, program on a much more uh, level playing field when it comes to the case management world um, that we're in. So that's a gigantic upside. Um, really happy about that. The downside for us is um, for the independent living program, we are going to experience the most change as a result of the new case management system. It's going to uh, change the way that we do our casework. It's going to change the way that we um, uh, manage some things that, that have to be done. Um, so it's going to be probably a bigger learning curve for the staff at the, for our independent living counselors. Um, so, you know, there's, with any kind of change, there's always that, uh, do we really have to kind of feeling? Um, but we're going to do it. And uh, a couple of years from now, we're going to, you know, somebody's going to look back and, and uh, be glad that we did. The other big thing that we're, that we're involved in with uh, independent living is um, our technical assistance. For the OIB program, um, Mississippi State has a federal grant that allows them to do technical assistance for programs like ours. Some of you all have already participated by uh, attending our stakeholders meeting that was conducted by our technical assistance facilitators. Um, so I wanted to take this moment to thank you for that participation, to take your time out, to sit through some of those things um, and, and give your input. Um, we really appreciate that. And so I wanted to tell you, as a result of that, that our facilitator told us that we had, uh, of all the ones that she's been involved in, we had the largest turnout for stakeholders of any that she's ever done. Um, and then she uh, reported really positive feedback. So, of course, there's always things we know we can improve upon. But in general, she gave us a really good um, response back. But we were very happy that we turned out the largest group um, of, of folks with that. But as a result of technical assistance this uh, year, we're going to be um, doing a few things um, that we know. Um, one, we're going to be uh, pretty heavily involved in updating our procedural manual. Um, so, uh, you know, that that's going to kind of be coming up to where we already are. We're kind of functioning above where our procedural manual is now, so we're going to bring it up to that level. Um, we're looking at ways of, of expanding our program's parameters and increasing our staff training opportunities. So through this year, um, it, it does last a year that we'll be receiving this technical training. And a few things that we know we're going to work on um, is continued training for our new staff and then uh, potentially adding additional positions as we go through that. Um, we're wanting to continue to build our program in a way that will continually offer opportunities for new service delivery because um, you know, we, we feel like that as we 
expand our service delivery model. It will allow us to take a look at our personnel to see, um, you know, if we need more people, how we need them, what kind of people that we need, and where we might need them. Maybe we don't need all just counselors. Maybe we need some other people as well. So we're really going to take a hard look at that this uh, fiscal year. And we're going to continue to hone our service delivery model. And I really think if, if Carla should invite me to come to this every single year, that would be a point that I would make every single year, that we're going to continue to hone in our service delivery model. Because from my experience, it's, you know, if, if you've become stagnant, then, you know, you're, you're going to begin to die. So you always are honing in on your service delivery model and in, increasing that potential. Um, so that kind of brings me to my end of, of independent living. Uh, but I, I again, I want to just thank you again for how valuable a partner you are um, for directing people our way. We have a lot of referrals that come to us because of you all. We really appreciate um, that so very much. And I can either take questions now about independent living or I can go on to uh, McDowell Center, however you all want to do it. Uh, uh, Bill, Bill Wright, um, I, uh, I'm blind. I've been blind for uh, several years, and um, I have not had an uh, eye uh, test or eye report uh, in several years. Um, is an eye test or eye report uh, needed for someone uh, receiving service. And and I will answer strictly from the independent living perspective. I would I would let Cora uh No, this is this, this this is independent living. Okay, for independent living. Um the way we work with vision reports is we uh if someone has any functional vision, we want to get an eye report for them uh because it gives us such a much better idea of how we might can work with remaining vision especially if they're interested in technology that would involve any sort of magnification devices um if someone is totally blind or has been known to be blind for a long time it is not required for eligibility that the person have a a new vision report we have a process within our system that allows us to waive that um when that situation occurs, if someone uh, just to go back, if someone comes into us with vision and we don't know them, uh, so we don't know anything about their functional vision, we will request that vision report. When I went through the training of in independent living, they didn't have computing training at that time. Have they got a person to teach the computer for you know people are going for independent living? For independent living and uh, computer training, um, this is kind of a twofold question or answer there. If someone is going to be receiving services through the McDowell Center, uh, we can request some training through the staff that is located at the McDowell Center. If someone is not receiving training there or they're located out in the state, that sort of thing, um, we do look for um, a contractor they can teach a certain amount of computer training, even to someone virtually if they cannot come in person for training. So we do uh, we do not have a person on our staff who is dedicated to just computer training that would be all over the state. Okay, well, I've been summoned to speak about McDowell Center, so I will do so. Um, this is from Heidi Kesterson. 
Um, so I'm just uh, going to be letting you know her statistics. It says from January 22 till now, they have served a total of 59 students. 49 of those were through the VR program. 10 of those were through independent living. And those folks live in 26 counties. And of those going through, 24 have completed um, their training program. They currently have 14 people in training with three more evaluations scheduled for this month or through the end of the year. As far as the staffing issues at the McDowell Center, they have um, assistive technology, orientation and mobility, and the personal adjustment counseling positions open. They are currently utilizing contract staff to provide to AT and vendors or itinerant staff are providing orientation and mobility training. Uh, however, despite all the openings that they currently have, every student uh, currently enrolled is receiving training in all of the needed areas. Her dorm update uh, says that they are in the renovation phase. Um, and as Cora mentioned, that they hope to have that done by March and with a grand opening in mid-April. And she also wanted to uh, let everyone know that all staff and student computers have been updated to 2021 Fusion, Fusion and JAWS. Um, so for those who have interest in those trainings and the agency license, which allows for quicker updates and is set up for new staff. So that is my update on um, the McDowell Center. Heidi's out of town today or she would have um, loved to have been here. All right, so the last thing I will say is um, Heidi did send along some of the new outreach materials for McDowell Center. We're going to leave them at the front table. So anyone interested in uh, picking up something for the McDowell Center can find it over there. And thank you again for your time for myself, Cora, and our entire agency. Thank you. Thank you to Gay Panel for making the long journey up here from Bowling Green. And we certainly appreciate that. Everyone give her a big round of applause, please. All right, so we are going to go ahead and get started. Um, my name is Natalie Couch, and I am the president of the Tri-State Library Users. Um, so I would like to introduce Barbara Pentagor, who is the director of the Talk Kentucky Talking Book Library, um, and she is going to tell us what is happening um, at the Kentucky Talking Book Library. So thank you, Barbara. Well, are you all talking book users? Yeah, yeah good for you. Me too. <laughs> well, NLS has had a busy year this year. They're starting a lot of new programs and new um, things, you know, that I think will benefit everybody, both you all the users and us the libraries. So let me just go over some of these things. And if you have any questions as I go along, feel free to ask. Um, the And these are in no particular order. I just made this list as I thought of things. <laughs> um, the NLS has started a new program called the Patron Engagement Program. And some of the things they're doing with that is they just recently announced a patron-only list serve. And this will not be, you know, they don't want to flood people with unnecessary emails, but this will be where they can announce upcoming programs that they're having. So you all, you all will know the dates and the 
the topics of the programs. And so if you all want to join that listserv, you can call us at the library and we'll be glad to sign you up for that. Or you can just email, if you can remember this email address, NLSPES, which stands for Patron Engagement Section, at loc.gov, but I know no one's going to remember that email address. So just give us a call at the library and we'll be glad to either sign you up or give you the email address so you can sign yourself up. And some of the things they will be announcing on that uh, listserv are the new patron corner program. Has anyone joined any of those? The patron corner? These are um, programs they have, NLS has for the patrons themselves, or you don't even have to be a patron, just for the general public. Um, One of them they had was the Art of Narration, and the one coming up in December is called Do You Hear What I Hear? The NLS music section is not just for musicians, and that will be Monday, December 12th. They have these on the the second second Monday of the month at 7 o'clock at night. And they have, you can join by Zoom, join with Zoom, either with a computer or a phone. Another program that they've started having regularly is called the Many Faces of Bard. So those of you who download from Bard or might be interested in downloading from Bard, this, they have a different topic every month. And um, I don't know what the the next um, topic is going to be yet. I don't know if they've announced it yet. But um, both of these programs, if you can't make the, the program live, they do record them and you can join and listen. You can listen to the program on your own after the fact. Um, another program NLS has is called the Aspiring Leadership Internship, Aspiring Leaders Internship. They've already stopped taping, taking applications for 2023. But if you know a college age student or a young adult who's getting started in their career, um, NLS is, is using interns to help them with some of their programs and they don't have to go to Washington. They can do this virtually from their home. So that's something to keep um, in, in your mind because you know someone who might be qualified for that or interested. How many of you guys use BARD to download books? Oh, good. few of you. Well, BARD has been going through some changes. Um, a recent one is they made it so you can reset your BARD password without having to use a secret question. Um, so now if you forget your password, which I did, I was it wasn't my BARD password, but I was trying to buy something at the store the other day and my mind completely blanked and I couldn't remember my PIN for my credit card. <laughs> so I know that happened. So if you forget your password... You you don't you just um, click on the password reset and it'll send you an email with a temporary password that you can then change to whatever you want your new password to be. So you no longer have to remember your cousin's uncle's first name or all those silly questions that they have. And they always ask questions about your spouse or your children. And I don't have a spouse or children, so it's hard for me to find a good question. Also, they recently launched a new version of the um, the uh, the iOS or the Apple platform. So any of you who have an Apple phone or tablet, you may have noticed the search is much better. What do you, Have you used that? What do you think? No Me too. And you no longer have to add things to your wish list in order to download it. 
Um, the one problem with it at this point is, and I don't know if anyone here reads in a different language, but you cannot search for non-English language books at this time. Um, but, you know, there are other ways around that. You can always go to the website and search and then put them on your wish list if you if you want to read in a different language. The Android app also had a recent upgrade. And they do know there is a bug that prevents downloading from the wish list, and NLS is working on that, and they will get that fixed as soon as they possibly can. Keep in mind, if you do want to download, make sure you download something at least every six months, because the federal government um, security regulations say if a, an account goes six months without being used, they will automatically make it inactive. Of course, we can always reactivate it. If that happens, just give us a call or send us an email. Is anyone here um, taking advantage of the Braille on Demand program? Oh, good. Um, if you don't know what that is, NLS has started a program where they will give you a Braille book to keep. Now, you, you don't want to take advantage. And, you know, this is not replacing regular circulation. So if it's just something you want to read, you don't want to use this. But if there's a book that you read over and over, it's a favorite, or maybe it's a favorite cookbook or something that has knitting instructions or something, that would be a perfect book to get. And you can get um, a book a month to keep. Now, of course, we all know that Braille is very large and you don't want to, uh, you know, um, um, what is the word I'm trying to say? You fill up your home so there's no room for you. <laughs> but yeah, I think they've been very generous with that. And you can request up to five books a month. Um, so anytime you have a favorite that you like to read over and over again, we can I'll, we can order it for you or you can actually go to the website and order it yourself. Now, there, you may have noticed if you're downloading that there's been... Um, not so many new books posted to BARD. That's because NLS, as does everyone know what NLS is when I mention NLS, the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. They're the, fed the branch of the Library of Congress who administers the talking book program to all the states. And they provide all of our equipment and uh, most of the Braille books and most of the audio books. They also administer the BARD website. But they have recently switched their production and inventory control system that controls the book production as well as a lot of other things. And it had some problems. When they went live, they, they found problem after problem and a lot of things that's delayed the whole production um, backlog. So there's a the whole production workflow. So there's a backlog of about a thousand books and about at, when I made this list, about 22,000 magazines. Um, they've restarted the magazine production, and for the time being, to get caught up, if you have a magazine subscription, they will put up to eight back issues of a magazine on your cartridges for you. Normally, they'll only do, I think it's two or three back issues, um, but now they're going to do up to eight back issues so that you can get caught up. There are some new magazines available. One is Guideposts in Braille. And they just uh, just learned a couple weeks ago, Guideposts is going to be available in audio probably in January. So if you guys like Guideposts magazine, that's an inspirational, non-denominational magazine. It's very popular. So that is coming soon in audio and is available now in Braille. 
Also, if you're into psychology, Psychology Today is available in audio. And the Harvard Women's Health Watch is available in audio. Uh, Another thing they're working on with magazines, you know, now the magazines are produced by some vendors. There's one in the East, uh, Potomac Talking Books, produces most of the ones for us here. And there's another vendor in the West. And your magazines come separately, and you have to keep track of... Is this a magazine cartridge? Which container does it go in? Well, NLS is actually working on integrating the magazines along with your books. So instead of having some cartridges that are books and some are magazines coming from two different places, (laughs) you'll just get one cartridge that'll have your books and magazines on them. They'll come from us. You won't have to worry about keeping track of which is which. Hey, Bill, what do you have a question? Uh, Yes, um, I have a question about the magazines. I started receiving a cartridge, and it just has one magazine, and, um, you know, I I download my magazines, and um, I was just wondering, uh, is there a way to stop that? Yeah, if you want to cancel a magazine, you say you want to stop the ones coming in the mail, correct? Yeah, just give us a call, and we can cancel that with... See, that's another problem with the magazines coming from one source and, and books coming from. Now we can handle all your magazine requests very easily and without having to go to a website and looking it up to see what NLS is doing. So, yeah, I can just make it. Do you know what magazine you want to stop? I didn't want to stop getting the cards. Okay, just stop them all. I'll just make a note on my little piece of paper here. Yeah, I'll make a note right now. Okay, consider it done, Bill. Another thing related to magazines that NLS is working on is in order to include some more additional magazines, they're they're considering uh, producing them as synthesized speech. Now, they're not going to replace the existing magazines that are human narrated, but in order to add some more magazines, they're considering doing some in synthesized speech just so they can have more different things available. Because it's faster to produce those. Speaking of magazines, the the catalogs are considered magazines, and that's the talking book topics in the Braille book review. And one of the things that's caused a lot of consternation and and worry is the fact that NLS can no longer produce the large print version of the talking book topics, which was their most circulated, most popular magazine. A lot of people use that to choose their books. And it is available online online. Um, but, you know, not everyone has access to online. So, you know, that that's, has anyone here, um, did they use the large print talking book topics? Well, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, although a lot of people, you know, about 75% of all talking book users have us pick their books for them using what we call auto select, which is a computer program where you tell us the types of books you like, and then we can use the program to pick books that fit in those categories. So it's kind of like potluck. You know, you're, you'll get things you may not like, but hopefully you'll also get a lot of things you do like. And that's a good way to find new authors. Yes, did you have a question? You like, you had the paper version? Right, she's saying that uh, when you get the auto-select, it picks a book that's not the first in a series. That's because it's a computer picking books. It doesn't know if a book is part of a series or not. It, it just says, well, you said you like mysteries, and this is a mystery, so here you go. But 
Yeah. But, you know, if you do get something and it intrigues you and you want to read the whole series, just give us a call. Send us an email. We'll be glad we can even put the whole series on one cartridge for you. So, yeah, like I said, this is a way to find new authors or new series that you might like. So if you get something that you might like and it's not the first in the series and you want to start at the beginning, just let us know. We can do that. You mentioned the Braille on Demand, and I would like to have a book that was published in nineteen about nineteen eighty three, and it's on your um, it's on your list, but it's not downloadable because I would have downloaded it years ago. Um, but anyway, can I get that book Braille on Demand? No, unfortunately not. It has to be available as electronic Braille for them to produce it. So they're not you know hand embossing things. It's got to be available as electronic file. So only things that are available on BARD. Now, if it's in the catalog, we could probably interlibrary loan it for you as a loan. Is there any estimation on when they're going to be caught up and we'll be able to, we'll see a larger amount of um, books available on BARD, uh, new download, new titles? Yes, they are working on that now. I think production is ramping up and I know because um, I get a list every month of the new books and, and I import those records into our system at work and then we have to assign subject headings for them. So in October, we didn't have any lists of new books. In November, we had a small list, but they say maybe in December or January, that backlog of about a thousand books should get caught up. So that means we'll have our work cut out for us. <laughs> Um, I don't know if they're doing any from flexible disc or not. And I think they've mostly converted all the the um, cassettes that they're going to do. Every once in a while, we get a list of some books they've converted from cassette. But for the most part, I think they're finished with that unless someone has a special request for something or they discover something that needs to be done after all. Wow. You know, and we did have a backlog of the old back issues of catalogs, but we, well, during COVID, when we're my, uh, Jeff, our administrative assistant, was looking for things to do, he recycled most of those old things. Little did we know that they would have come in handy. Now, if you do use BARD or go to the online NLS catalog or use the Braille book review, you may have noticed the, the descriptions of the books have changed. It used to be that staff at NLS would actually write a description of the book called an annotation, but they're no longer doing that. Now they're actually using the publisher-provided information which in most cases is typically what you'd find on a book jacket of a, of a print book. And depending on the publisher and whoever wrote that <laughs> description, sometimes they're really good and they give you a lot more information that than we can cram in the little NLS description. Sometimes they're not so good. They'll say something like, oh, and, uh, you know, an enthusiastic study of the, you know, the life spirit, you know, <laughs> they're very vague. And you're like, what the heck is this book about? Um, and a lot of times if, when the information comes from the publisher, of course, the publisher calls everything a bestseller, you know, the greatest book ever. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. But um, also the, the longer descriptions don't fit on the BARD website. And of course, NLS is aware of that and they're working on a fix so that they can enlarge that field so the full description will fit. 
Oh, also, and I just learned this um, a couple weeks ago. If anyone uses the online catalog, this is not barred, but the comprehensive online NLS catalog, that is going to change to a new platform soon, which will um, result in better searching, kind of like the change from in um, the barred mobile. Uh, the searching will be, be a little more intuitive and similar to other uh, platforms. Anyone here reading a different language than English? Oh, good. We've got someone there. Spanish, good. Well, um, there are a lot of foreign language books available on BARD. These are through the Marrakesh Treaty from a few years ago. Um, if you do use BARD and you don't read a foreign language and you're getting a lot of results in languages you don't understand, you can um, set your BARD account to produce only English results. Does everyone know that? Okay, good. And if you do want to know what's available in other languages other than English, they do have the Foreign Language Quarterly magazine that comes out. Yes, I called, um, I think, back when the um, change was made where you could stop and only just get the English uh, language things, but it doesn't work on your Victor stream. Is there going to be a fix for that or that I do not know the answer to that. Um, again, like Bill's question, I would think if you went into the BARD website and set it the way you wanted, it should keep those um, settings regardless of what device you're using. But I, I can't attest to whether that's actually accurate or not. Does anyone here know? Anyone using a Victor Reader stream? Yeah, I'm sorry, Susan. It, it looks like that is not the case. That uh, Fortunately, with the stream, you get all or nothing. Three things I wanted to mention. Number one, I know that you're in charge of large print now for uh, DLA. And um, what kind of uses does that get out uh, throughout the state? And, of course, KCB and our uh, low vision group is very interested in um, materials for low vision people. Uh, that's the first thing. Second thing, uh, I wanted to mention that... Um, we have our Kentucky Historical Society of the Blind, uh, which has been uh, incorporated and going on for about a year or more. And I just wanted to thank Barbara for serving on that board with us. And uh, we're making a little progress, I think. So, Barbara, thank you for that. And then on the um, magazines, um, I wish that in talking book topics, uh, they would list the Braille magazines uh, as well as the audio, just as in Braille book review, they list the audio magazines as well as the Braille magazines. I've mentioned that several times uh, nationally, and it doesn't seem to go anywhere. Um, I'll address the um, the large print. Yes, the state library does have large print books. We don't really provide them through the talking book library because what the how the program works is we provide large print books to public libraries around the state, and they have them in their library so their patrons and users can come in and check out large print books. And they're circulating collections, so each library elects whether they want to participate. 
and then they tell us um, what types of books they want and how many they want. So they may say, we want 20 Westerns and 40 mysteries and so forth, and we'll send them a collection of books. They keep them for three months, I think, long enough for their uh, people to come in and choose them. And then they return them, and we send them another batch. So that way they have fresh selection of large print books at their library. This is good for a lot of the smaller public libraries around the state who can't afford to buy their own large print collections. Or maybe they have some, but they can't afford to get a whole lot. And we do the same with commercial audiobooks, not the talking books. But just regular books on CD for the general public. Again, uh, you know, some of those are $100 for one book. So a lot of public libraries can't afford to buy those. So we buy them and then provide them to the public libraries. Hi, could you speak on the um, progress of the pilot program of the NLS e-reader? Okay. I sure can. It's no longer a pilot for us because here in Kentucky, we were one of the first libraries. So we've had the e-readers for two and a half years. But unfortunately, a lot of the libraries, I think there's probably maybe, if I had to guess, maybe two thirds of the talking book libraries in the country have them. So a lot of the talking book libraries in other states don't have e-readers yet. And for example, we had someone who lived here in Kentucky with the e-reader. She moved to a different state that didn't have them. And when she called them with a question about the e-reader, they're like, I don't know. We haven't seen one yet. So um, that provoked NLS to realize, oh, we need to open the support and training materials to libraries who don't have them yet just so they can answer questions and can file um, support tickets with the the e-reader support staff. So that did result in a, a little help. Um. Let's see. Oh, one thing of note, um, this year, the United States Postal Service Inspector General did an audit of free matter mailing. And we already knew this, but they finally learned it, that um, they studied the acceptance, handling, and delivery of free matter and found that inspection is not consistently enforced. You know how they say you shouldn't seal your envelope if you're sending something free matter? Um, They said, well, they found that most people aren't doing that. So they're reviewing the need of even doing that. And, you know, maybe they'll say, well, you don't need to leave it unsealed. To be honest, I don't I seal them at least a little because we would mail applications or things to people. and They'd say, well, I got an empty envelope. (laughs) So, you know, I'll at least put a little dab of something or a little piece of tape just to keep stuff from falling out. They also said that, oh, you know what? The for, the free matter is not always treated as first class mail, and it's supposed to be. Well, we all know that. I think you know a lot of uh, people are like, ah, they're not paying for it. They'll get it when they get it. And they also discovered that postal employees need better training, especially those at the storefront retail outlets, which not a surprise to us either. <laughs> But at least they're looking into it, and they did um, determine that the free matter mailing is a very good service. They want to continue it, but they do realize they need to make some changes. I listen to you. Thank you. In relation to the free matter, number one, the post office does get paid for that because Congress, federal government pays for it. So it's not exactly free for them. They they do get paid. Secondly, though, a major issue. Uh, I think that is happening, and even locally here on the news, it 
has even been uh, pointed out by the post office that they are cutting back on their mailboxes. And so whereas there used to be a lot of uh, mailboxes at a corner where you could take your return books and so on, uh, there's fewer and fewer of those. And one excuse they're using for that is that they're saying that there's a lot of postal thievery people breaking into the mailboxes and looking for checks and that sort of thing. But what this means is that if I want to return books, instead of being able to walk to the corner and drop them in or to a, a nearby uh, mailbox, transportation is a problem. If I have to take them to a post office, which it might be five miles away, that is not very good. Agreed. Yeah, the, the the postal employees who say, oh, they're not paying for this, they should be glad that there is such a thing as free matter because the post office is getting paid for that, whether anyone uses it or not. And the way things are going, there may not be a post office eventually. Okay, um, do we have any veterans here? Nope. Well, um, the VA Veterans Administration has a new program where some of the Veterans Administration, the VIST coordinators, are now trained and authorized to sign up their veterans for uh, talking books. And what happens a lot of time is someone will go to a vet center for training and they want to like learn how to use BARD or learn how to use talking books, but they won't be home for another four or six weeks or however long it is. So by the time they get home, they've forgotten how to do it. So now the, the VA VIS coordinators are actually signing them up for top, talking books well, or BARD and sending us the applications so it makes it a little faster so they can start using it while they're at their training centers. As far as equipment, you know, this digital talking book player been a real good thing. Everyone has enjoyed that. It's such a huge improvement over the old cassettes. But NLS is working on a second generation digital player. It'll be called the DA2, and it's made by Humanware based on the Stratus. Is anyone familiar with the Humanware Stratus? It'll be kind of based on that, um, but NLS has received about 400 units of those, and NLS staff have tested it. They did find there were some software issues, so they had to um, have Humanware work on that some more, but um, there is a... Um, a committee at NLS made up of NLS people and some library patrons around the country and, and talking book librarians around the country called the Reader Technology, it's called RTAG, and now I'm trying to remember, Reader Technology, and I, I can't remember what it stands for. Um, but anyway, it's made up of members who um, who meet and discuss the t the reading technology and give feedback to NLS. So they will be the next people to test the new player. And then they'll send, NLS will send each of the talking book libraries a player. So we'll have that to play with and test until they, while they make more for all the patrons. Now this machine isn't going to replace the current player. It will just be used in addition. You know, a lot of our older users like easy and they're used to this player so they're not going to want to change but maybe some of the people who uh, are more a little more used to technology may want to try it because it will have built-in wi-fi it will have bluetooth technology it'll have onboard storage so you can download or get books in the mail load them up on the machine and then send it back just like if you're using an e-reader you can do with those it will have capability for text-to-speech. 
and we'll have built built-in BARD access. So it'll be a one-stop shop. Okay. It'll be a little bigger. It's it's more square. The current machine is more rectangular. This one will be more square. Because the new player will have Bluetooth, does that mean that the e-reader will connect to it? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't seen one. Yeah, it's still it's still a concept to me. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't see why it wouldn't. So you'll be able to download directly to the player, to the new player? That's right. Yeah, because that's what the e-reader users can do now. So now you can do the same with audio. And speaking of the e-reader, they're working on a, um upgrade for that where you could possibly play audio on the e-reader. And, Bill, you might be interested in this. They're also working on making uh, giving BARD Express playback capabilities so you can download on your computer and then play your talking books on the computer if that's what you want to do. Um, another a project they're working on is using a smart speaker to play talking books. That would be a Google um, Assistant or Alexa. Does anyone have one of those? Yeah. So wouldn't it be cool if you could say, hey, Alexa, or I call mine Echo. Hey, Echo, um, find To Kill a Mockingbird. Echo, play To Kill a Mockingbird. Because it'll give you search. You can search it or you can use it to access your wish list. You can say, Hey, Echo, delete this from my wish list or add this to my wish list. So, or skip ahead or back up, you know, so that'll be cool. Let's see. And another thing they're working on is the ability to sync books across all your devices. So, if you're like me, I have an old phone I leave near my bed that I listen to talking books when I go to bed. But then I have my new phone that I keep in my purse, I listen to in my car, and then I have my iPad. But if I want to listen to one book, I'm like, well, I can't listen to this on this because it's downloaded onto the other thing. So if they sync it across all devices, no matter what you're listening to it on, either your Alexa or your player or your phone, it'll you can pick up where you left off. I think that's all the NLS updates I have. So let's talk a little bit about the Talking Book Library here in Kentucky. We have a book club that meets every month. And um, Bill and Adam join that as well. So we have about usually about a dozen or so people who join us every month and we talk about a book. Um, Tuesday was our last meeting. And the book we discussed was the Oxbow Incident, which was a Western. Did you guys read that one? I didn't get I didn't get it read. I ran out of time, so I cheated and watched the movie. But I will say the movie was very similar to the book, at least as far as I read in the book, although Janet said the ending was slightly different. So But we try and read a variety of things. We've read a romance, we've read a western, we've read mysteries, we've read historical fiction. So our next book, I can't remember what it is. I think it's a young adult book. So Oh, The Hate You Give. That's right. This The Hate You Give. Yes. Oh, it's called the, the Hate You Give. It's a fabulous book. Yeah. It's an inner city story uh, following a young girl who witnesses a friend being killed by a police officer. Yeah. So it's not light reading, but, you know, it's still it's won a lot of awards. Oh, has it been made a movie? I see. I didn't know that. Well, I won't cheat on that one because I have plenty of time to read it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, please join us for our book club if you're able to. Uh, if you can't, no problem. You can read the book and talk about it with your friends and family.
Um, I was telling Carla, I was recently uh, invited to appear on, on in Lexington on one of the local TV news channels, their noon show it, to promote talking books. Of course, I only had three minutes, so I had to talk really fast. But um, they were seemed to be interested in it. And um, that day, someone called and said, oh, I saw this on the news. So um, I would like to have that opportunity to reach out to some other TV stations. So if you all know, like especially here in Louisville, if you know of a, a TV station that has a similar show where I could approach them and maybe do my spiel on their channel, I'd love to do it. WVR. DRB. Yes. Oh, okay. W-H-A-F-O. W-H-A-F-O. Okay. Do you know the the host? Because sometimes that's what you have to reach out is the name of the people. Doesn't do you know the host? I don't know her name. Well, I'll, I'll look. I can like go online and. Natalie, you had a question. Um, I did. Is there a way? Because I can't attend a book club. Um, but is there a way to get on an email list to know what you all are going to be yes. reading? Yes. Yeah, if you all are interested in just getting the email to know what book we're reading, let us know. So I'll put Natalie. Hope I can read this one. I get it back. Yes, um, some of some of our book club people download the book. Others have us mail it to them on cartridge. So whatever way you prefer, we can do. And you know, if we get a lot more members, we might consider having a second you know, book club or a second group, like maybe for people, maybe in the evening for people who work during the day or just can't make it during the day. So, you know, depending on how much interest we get, we we could have a second meeting. Um, and Adam mentioned our large print books. Another outreach thing uh, we did is just recently we created bookmarks that say, and I should, I can't remember exactly. It says something about have trouble seeing regular print. There's more than one way to read a book. Try try talking books, something like that. So we're putting those bookmarks in all of the large print books that go out to the public libraries. So if grandma and, you know, Bowling Green goes to her local library and checks out a large print book, she'll open it up and see that bookmark and think, oh, that might be something I might look into. So, um, you know, our biggest problem, people who get talking books love them, but so many people out there don't know about us. You know, it's estimated, according to the U.S. Census, um, 2 to 3% of Kentuckians will have visual disabilities that might qualify them for talking books. So if that's the case, there may be up to 400,000 people in the state, but we only have about 4,000. So we need to, to reach out to those people who can benefit and enjoy the service. Um, NLS is involved in a national digital advertising campaign. So if you are searching on the web, you might come across some ads for NLS because it's a keyword promotion. So if someone searches for blind or audiobooks or Braille or something, it might trigger them to, to, set, to set up a little ad for talking books. And so that's on Google and Bing, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, iHeart, RallyPoint, and others. Some of those I'm not even familiar with. So hopefully, you know, our, we want to reach out to people who so they can enjoy talking books like you guys do. And that is all I have. Uh, thank you all for listening to me ramble on. And I hope you enjoy your reading. Just let us know if you have any questions or any issues with your talking book use, and we'll be glad to do what we can to help you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Barbara. I want to thank... 
everybody for inviting me to talk to your 2022 meeting of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. And uh, just by way, I brought my own entourage. So with me today is our Director of Annual Fund and Special Projects, Lisa Eschner, and Aaron Sigmund, our Community Relations Officer. Aaron's title is actually longer than that, so I rewrote it. Um, but, but Aaron and Lisa are here to make sure that everything I say is strictly accurate, and they're going to report the same back to our company. No, actually, our advancement department is working very hard to support all of our efforts, and I really appreciate Lisa and Aaron being here with me today. Now, I've titled this speech, Thoughts Around the Water Pump, because our efforts in the museum at the American Printing House for the Blind over the last 15 years have borne such amazing fruit that it's never a bad idea to take a deep breath and think about where we are. So the water pump is an obvious reference to that moment in the life of author and activist Helen Keller at the age of seven, when her teacher, Ann Sullivan, herself aged only 20. And as an aside, is, is anybody in here 20 or younger? Anybody? No? How do you prepare yourself for a moment in your life when at the age of 20, and after basically 20 years of being desperately poor and disabled and anonymous yourself, that moment over a brief summer with an incredible child that you momentarily become the most famous teacher in the world. That incredible moment in the life of author and activist Helen Keller at the age of seven, when her teacher, Ann Sullivan, herself aged 20, broke through the physical isolation of Helen's deafness and blindness to teach Helen the concept of language. And on a smaller scale, and without the fanfare and the press coverage and the major Broadway plays, each of us, each of us has our own water pump moment when a teacher helped us to understand, to know, and to grow. So as you might know, three years ago, the American Foundation for the Blind, where Helen and Annie worked from 1924 until their deaths, transferred their AFB Helen Keller archive and the general AFB archive to our museum. AFB, after close to 100 years in New York, was moving the physical headquarters of their operation to Virginia. And they were looking for a new landing spot for the Helen Keller Archive, which had been in cold storage for years. So since January 28th of 2020, when the collection arrived on our loading dock, myself and Justin Gardner and Mary Beth Williams have been spending most of our time inventorying and counting and shelving this most wonderful intellectual accumulation of the lives of two of the most interesting women of the 20th century. Helen and Annie traveled all over the world in their mission to educate and advocate, advocate about and for people who are blind or low vision. And wherever they went, they were celebrated and honored and given gifts of the most amazing variety. And when not on the road, the pair lived interesting lives entertaining and being entertained by wealthy benefactors and inventors, celebrities, writers and poets, actors and actresses, politicians, kings and princes and princesses. And in her spare time, Helen Keller wrote and wrote and wrote. 
at least 11 books and countless magazine articles, speeches, and letters. And people wrote her. Oh, yes, they did. And my favorite letters are not the funny jabs from Mark Twain or the earnest notes from Alexander Graham Bell and darling all the finest people of the East Coast liberal establishment. But my favorites are the countless letters from the little people asking Miss Helen for just a little piece for themselves. The little boy in Colorado writing a book report asking her to send him an original poem in Braille. A theater operator in Connecticut asking for her signature on a theater program to present to the play's director. And oh, so many others that Harry's staff at AFB had to respond to because, you know, Miss Helen is in her 80s and cannot answer every letter individually. And no, she cannot send you a lock of her hair. (laughs) But this is not the only major collection we've added at APH in the last few years. In 2019, I traveled up to the AER headquarters in Northern Virginia and picked up the archives of the AER, too. And while not as large as the AFB collection, it's no less important. In fact, AFB is actually the child of the AER, and in a conference room in a nice anonymous office park in Alexandria, Virginia, then-executive director Janie Blome ushered me in where staff had gathered box after box of materials dating back to 1915. The first job was to go through everything and decide what in that room was significant and what was, what was stuff that had just washed up over decades of operation but was commonplace. And it took me a couple of days, but in the museum we developed a lot of experience doing just that kind of thing. Our museum opened in 1994. And we have gradually built a reputation as the safety deposit box for the entire field of blindness. <clears throat> now, in 2006, I met an O&M and a dog guide guy from California named Mike Metier. And we leaned over a case of, I think, it maybe held four O&M objects that we had there and mused about where Buddy's harness was. Now, if you don't get the, harness, the reference, Buddy was Morris Frank's first dog guide. Although really, he was a she, whose real name was Kiss. And if you don't get that reference, Morris Frank helped found the seeing eye with Kiss's breeder and trainer, Dorothy Eustace, thus creating the field of orientation and mobility in the United States. Anyhow, I think both Mike and I decided that the harness must be like in the Smithsonian or something, right? Like with Judy Garland's Rudy, Ruby slippers and Fonzie's jacket. Now, you all do know who the Fonz was, right? Okay. <laughs> but the next day, Mike is at this conference with a guy named Rick Welsh, who had just then retired from Pittsburgh Vision Services. And I hadn't met Rick yet, but the next week I got a phone call. Rick was on the archives committee for AER's Division 9, their O&M division. And the division was looking for a new home for their archives, then housed at the Maryland School for the Blind. And would I be interested in talking? Well, I was. I received a bit of fame or notoriety back at APH for flying up to Maryland, helping load this truck with box after box of electronic travel aids and long canes and photographs and letters and notes on the back of backs of napkins and publications documenting the birth and development of O&M 
and then myself driving the truck back to Louisville and unloading it on a Saturday. And that contact led me to Lucas Frank and Jim Kutch at the Seeing Eye, where I learned that not one but two of Buddy's harnesses were still held in their archives. And yes, they would be willing to loan me one if APH would pay to have them repaired by a leather conservator. And you can come see that unique piece of history in our O&M exhibit in the museum today. And it was the subject of a Mysteries in the Museum episode a few years ago. Did anybody see that? It was really great. I thought it was really great. Um, and there have been other successes as well. We partnered with the Carroll Center for the Blind to preserve the papers of Father Thomas Carroll. Now, in addition to being the spiritual force behind O&M developments in the U.S. Armed Forces during and after World War II, Thomas Carroll founded the St. Paul's Rehabilitation Center for the Blind in 1954 in a Boston suburb, the first civilian facility offering comprehensive rehabilitation for the newly blinded. And in 1965, he helped found the first geriatric rehabilitation center for blind people in the country. In short, if it had the word blind in it, between 1941 and his death in 1971, Father Carroll had his finger in it, and all of his papers were in danger of molding away after a flood that they had had in the Carroll Center basement. Our collections manager at the time, Ann Rich, and I spent months removing rusted staples and vacuuming active mold and mildew, but today that collection is one of the most important in our hands. And... We hold the archives for the Braille Authority of North America. And last year, we added the papers of the, the collection of the Kentucky School for the Blind Alumni Association. And all of these papers are gathered together in one national archive, centrally located in Louisville. And we're proud and pleased to make them available for researchers and scholars and school children writing those book reports. At our first Helen Keller Symposium held this September, Dr. Mara Mills, who was the founder of the Center for Disability History at New York University, proclaimed after a tour of our new storage facility that she believed we had the largest collection of disability history materials in the world. Not the largest collection of blindness materials, the largest collection of disability history materials in the world. Now, I think that the underlying reason that APH created its museum, and for that matter, why the alumni at KSB began saving their own history, was this vague feeling that our history is being lost, that things are being thrown away that ought not to be thrown away, that young teachers and young specialists are growing up not knowing the roots of their own profession. And they're forgetting the struggles that the pioneers went through to get the field recognized, to create standards, to create training curriculum, and to earn government support. Maybe we all have that vague feeling sometimes about younger generations. Now, imagine I have a cigarette dangling from my mouth. They didn't have it as hard as we had it, honey. Let me tell you. But I also think that history can be inspiring and information, informational in our everyday lives. Now, of course, I think that, right? It's my job. <laughs> but think about your own first days. Your first day at school. Your first day on the job. Your first day in a new town. Your first day in your own apartment or house 
your first day holding your first child, your first day of retirement, maybe your first meeting of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Can you tell me that having a superhero model like Ann Sullivan, knowing that she persevered through the challenges and succeeded beyond her wildest imaginings, can you tell me that that doesn't give you some confidence? Can you imagine how she felt stepping off that train in the wilds of Alabama, armed only with a high school education, so far away from everything she ever knew, her poor eyes aching, only weeks removed from her most recent eye surgery, straining to understand the accents and make herself and her Boston Irish understood, and to hide the fact from these ex-Confederate gentry that her immigrant father was so destitute that he left her and her brother at the almshouse. And when she arrived at the Perkins School for the Blind, her dress, her hose, her shoes had been provided to her by the fallen women from that same almshouse and were the only things she owned in the whole world. And if she failed to work a miracle for Mr. and Mrs. Keller, she was going to lose her position and end up where? And we sit here with our diplomas and our air conditioning and our unemployment insurance and our social security and our city buses and our textbooks in braille and large print supplied at government expense. All that and the story of Ann Sullivan doesn't give all of us confidence that we can make it. And how fragile individual memory is, right? I'm 58, and I find (laughs) that I remember less and less, and there just isn't any room left up there in the end. So if somebody doesn't tuck it in a file and label it and make sure that it doesn't go out on the porch for the trash man when Aunt Viv passes, well, maybe nobody is left to remember it and write it down. And then Aunt Viv is just gone. So what are we going to do with all this magnificent stuff? Well, kids, we are going to put on a show. Now, you may have heard some of what is going on over at APH, but I'm here this evening to give you the real skinny. First, you have to understand that this project does not exist in a vacuum. It's part of a much larger renovation project that's going to propel APH into the 21st century. Our first building, where the museum is located now on the second floor, was built in 1883. There are 13 other structures built onto that original building in one way or another, built In 1927, 1935, 1947, 1953, 1955, 1958, 1963, 1965, 1970, 1973, and 1980. And although we've updated the wiring and the plumbing and the HVACs over over time in a piecemeal fashion, what we are really operating with at APH is a mishmash of really old and really outdated infrastructure. Our meeting rooms are undersized and feature deluxe 1970s-era wood grain and beige linoleum tile. (laughs) Our Wi-Fi and our AV connections for HDMI have been jack-legged in wherever possible. 
Our windows leak. Our roof leaks. On a bad day this summer, a section of brick wall back in production bulged for a while and then uh, fell into the parking lot. Our building is tired. Now, everything is well-maintained, mind Typically, visitors on the factory tour have described our floors as clean enough to eat off of. And it's obvious that our staff takes great pride in our service to the nation. But it's just time to update our facilities to meet the needs of a modern research and manufacturing facility. Now, our museum opened in 1994. And in its original incarnation, it explored the first books and the birth of Braille, the history of talking books, the history of large print, and the history of educational aids. In 1994, most of our Braille was being embossed on the old clamshell presses using hinged zinc plates prepared on the plate embossing device. Today, most of our Braille is embossed on digital presses like the Braille 0650, and we only use plates for special jobs. In 1994, we were were still experimenting with photocopiers in large print. Our large print books back then were being printed on offset printing presses. Today, it's all done on two big Canon photocopiers. In 1994, all of our talking books were on audio cassettes, and the recordings were still being made on audio tape. Today, our recording is all digital. And the finished product is sent to the National Library Service digitally. It has no physical form at all. And if you open our catalog today, sure, you'll still find a few products left that we made in 1994. But most of them have been redesigned or simply discontinued in favor of newer and better ideas. In short, there have been so many advances, so many additions, that our museum exhibits are outdated. And our collections have increased in size at least five-fold. We just don't have the space to tell all the stories our collection is set up to tell. So let me tell you a little bit about the new museum. First, we are committed to creating the most accessible museum possible. Everything, and I mean everything, must be accessible. In addition to our museum designer, which is Solid Light, they're a local Louisville firm, we have an accessibility consultant, a company called PAC, that is working with Solid Light to brainstorm every element and ask, does this work for everybody? And folks, this isn't easy. If it was easy, all of you would be able to tell me a great story about a museum you went to last year, but you can't, can you? By and large, museums fall into the no-fun zone. We want to change that. We want you to be able to find it. We want you to be able to touch it. We want you to be able to read about it. We want you to be able to learn more about it. We want you to experience it and to walk out of the museum excited about what you saw. And we want you to be so excited that you tell your friends about it. And we want you to want to come back. And we want other museums to learn from us and change the way that they are doing things. And if you hate history and you're not interested in old stuff at all, and you don't care a hill of beans 
how today is different from yesterday, and that's okay. At least we want you to acknowledge that we gave the effort our best. So first, we're going to be accessible. Second, we are reinventing ourselves. When I started at APH in 2005, the museum was named the Marie and Eugene Callahan Museum of the American Printing House for the Vine. The Callahan Museum had been renamed for a generous donor whose background and interests had nothing to do with blindness, and we quickly reverted back to just Museum of the American Printing House of the Blind. The new museum is going to have a new name. And I'm proud to announce today that it is going to be, well, I don't know yet. I don't know what the name is going to be. Because our team is still focus grouping and test marketing it, but the ideas that I've heard are very exciting, and I can't wait for us to be at a point where I can share that. I do know a lot more about the physical facility. We're only at the 60% level of design, so everything is still fluid and grainy. Um, so some of the things that I'm going to describe may not actually appear in the final construction drawings. First, we're going to build a new four-story structure on the front facing Frankfurt Avenue. That'll be our first new building on the property since 1980. The main entrance is going to be at the parking lot level, and the parking lot between APH and KSB is going to be widened and expanded. We're, we're actually got permission to widen the entrance to the parking lot, those stone walls. Um, and so it's going to make it a lot easier for our buses to park near the entrance. Um, the new building lobby is going to be located on the ground floor of that building, and we're working very hard to design a space that will be welcoming, that will be easy to navigate, and one, get ready for this, where the bathrooms actually make sense. <laughs> wow. Wouldn't that be exciting? What is up with that? that? No two bathrooms in the United States are laid out the same way. I have no clue. We are going to have an expanded gift shop. Uh, flexible and expanded classroom space there. So anybody who's ever been to one of our educational programs where we literally had to move all the furniture out so we could put the program on, we're actually going to have a dedicated space for that. Uh, we're going to have a reception desk that's going to welcome you and orient you to all the accessibility features. The upper floors are going to feature the new museum and new meeting spaces and eating areas. And we're even going to have a rooftop garden that gives a grand view of the river in downtown Louisville and should be a great place to enjoy the Clifton neighborhood. It turns out that in 2022, if you don't have a rooftop garden, you're just nobody. So <laughs> this, this new building is going to be integrated architecturally into the 1955 and 1970 buildings that form our current front facade through some radical surgery. Sometime next summer, we're going to move... All of those, we're going to have to move out of those front buildings, and they're going to be reduced to just their floors and structural beams. And when we put it all back together, they're going to share a brick, stone, glass, and metal skin with the new building, that, and it's going to radically transform the way the building looks from Frankfurt Avenue. Now, leading out of that lobby and into the museum on the second floor is going to be a wide staircase and a new, praise the Lord, large group-sized elevator. If you've ever ridden on our elevator, you know it's dated from 1955, and boy, don't we know it. So as you emerge from this deluxe elevator, you're going to find yourself in a central space that we call the hub. 
From the hub, you can find your way into any of the three major exhibits in the museum, or you can follow a sequential route to your right. Yes, museum research tells us that people naturally want to go that way. I'm sorry for all you southpaws. Um, in the hub is a large curved wall that will feature the main AV presentation, whose preliminary title will be Welcome Everyone. Here, the visitor will meet a diverse group of people who are blind or low vision, who will welcome the visitor into the museum and into an exploration of their lives. Here, we will establish a tone for the whole museum that this is a safe place to explore the humanity we all share despite our physical differences and begin to encourage visitors to explore how our cast of characters engages with a largely inaccessible world. Passing through Welcome Everyone, we enter Section 1, currently titled Blindness and the Human Experience. Our main goal here is to demystify blindness by featuring real people and real stories. First, we'll explore what blindness is and how different people with different visual abilities experience the world. Stories are going to explore home life, family dynamics, school life, and work activities and reveal how navigating these life activities is often just as mundane and unremarkable as they are for anybody. Anybody who talks to me knows that I often talk about how people with disabilities put their leg, pants on one leg at a time, right? Just like everybody else. It's not, it's not a superhero thing. Next, we're going to dive a little deeper into orientation and mobility. So from guide dogs to long canes to textured sidewalk cuts and chirping traffic signals, we'll explore how people who are blind get around. And finally, in this section, we'll meet a cast of eight to 10 people who will share the accommodations they use to do what they do. Our goal here is to share stories from across the blindness community, and they should exemplify perspectives from the extraordinary to the everyday. So if we have a superstar like, I don't know, mountain climber Eric Weinmeier, then we also need to balance that with a young mother. Or maybe somebody who's been unemployed or underemployed most of their life. But we're interested in the tools and adapted materials that people use to live their life, to cook, to work, to do their thing. Now we walk into the section on Helen Keller, and that's going to have four major sections. First, there'll be a timeline element that will share a lot of the stuff in the collection and tell the basic story. There will be a section with the working title, Unlikely Radical that will explore her activism and advocacy and introduce some modern-day activists who are working on modern issues. And Helen was quite the activist. Um, there's going to be a section on her world travel that will explore her identity as an ambassador and a fundraiser. And there will be a recreation from her office from Arcan Ridge where visitors will be able to step into a moment of Keller's life and referencing back to the previous exhibit, see the accommodations that Keller used in her own work life. And the final section has the working title, APH and Innovation. Here we're introduced to the first tactile books and the story of Louis Braille and other innovators who unlock the printed word for blind readers. We look at the history of the early schools. We look at the history of educational aids. We look at the history of refreshable Braille, the impact of the cell phone. We look at the history of tactile production at APH and the history of talking books. We explore product development from concept to prototype to finished product. And we look at the history of large print and magnification for low vision readers. 
So Ann Sullivan arrived at Tuscumbia, Alabama in 1887. That was 135 years ago. She, two weeks after she arrived, she writes a letter back to Michael Anagnos at the Perkins School. Quote, my heart is singing for joy. A miracle has happened. A light of understanding has shone upon my little people's mind, and behold, all things have changed. Have you had one of those moments? The water pump moments? I hope dearly that you have. Ann Sullivan reported her successes back to the field. And through the work of organizations like the AAIB and the American Council of the Blind, we report, we grow, we learn, we commiserate, we laugh, we cry, we legislate, we advocate, we do it together. And in so doing, we improve outcomes and we change lives. We change people's lives and we change our lives and we change the future. APH, through its libraries and museum, is proud to be helping preserve these stories. I think it's important. I hope you think it's important. And I can't wait for opening day. Thank you all very much. I am delighted to be here. I just want to start by thanking Carla for the invitation and Terry for assisting with getting us all together. Thanks to all of you who are joining me. I know many of you, certainly. And I would like to introduce myself as the owner of Elegant Insights Braille Creations. We offer a distinctive handcrafted collection of jewelry and accessories, all embossed in Braille. And most recently, we even offer engraving. You can find us at elegantinsightsjewelry.com on the web. That's elegantinsightsjewelry.com. You're also welcome to give us a call at 702-605-1265. And we offer a variety of merchandise for everyone on your list. So let's do a little holiday shopping. I have products that would be great for both men and women. And as soon as the guys hear jewelry, they sort of check out. So let's start with gifts for the gentlemen, because sometimes guys can be a little hard to shop for. And so I thought it might be nice if we did like a little mini holiday gift guide so I could walk you through a few ideas of the types of things that you might consider for your loved ones or friends or even co-workers or colleagues. For the guys, there are several items that revolve around sports. For example, if your guy loves football, or if you do, we have some football key rings that have an officially licensed NFL team logo key tags. We add a copper football on which we can braille emboss your team name like Go Rams or Go Pats or just Go Team. Uh, we'll also add a key ring, of course, a split ring for your keys and a carabiner clip. So you or he can clip it to your belt loop or your backpack or whatever. We even have a few baseball, MLB baseball items for the sports lover on your list. 
Yankees are a little hard for me to get, so we don't have that many. We have the Dodgers, of course. We have the Yankees, and we have a couple of others, but those also feature a carabiner clip and a split ring for keys. We have a baseball. Of course, we have to include a baseball charm that has the stitches and the... um, the team name on it, and we add a diamond, of course, for a baseball diamond. And again, we can braille emboss or engrave a team name, something like a team motto, for example, Go Dodger Blue. And we can do that in braille or engraving. We also have items that are a little bit more gender neutral, like business card cases. We have a couple of different variations of business card cases that we can personalize with either Braille or engraving. And if you're looking for something like jewelry for a gentleman, we have a couple of options. We offer military style dog tag necklaces, which are great if you want to add maybe a couple of lines of Braille, maybe a name or a sentiment, because we offer the dog tags in a couple of different sizes. And those come on a 24 inch ball chain. We can also create those in a number of different ways if you want to give him, say, a key ring with a special message on it, or we even offer the military-style dog tags as a luggage tag, and those make great gifts for just about anyone. And finally, for a jewelry item for the gentleman, we have ID style bracelets and the ID bracelets are the type of bracelets where you have a rectangular plaque that goes across the top of your wrist and then of course it secures with a chain and a clasp and the rectangular plaque can be braille embossed with his name or yours a special date or a special love note maybe even just I love you so those are a couple of items for the guys we have bookmarks we have Barware, if you have a wine rack, a special in-home bar or a wine cellar, if your gift recipient is a wine lover, we have wine glass charms in a variety of shapes and sizes with different Braille sayings on them. We even have wine bottle and decanter identifiers. So those make great gifts. We have accessories like mobility cane charms. We actually have quite a wide variety of charms for your white mobility cane. We have some that are hearts and stars and flowers. We have guitar picks. We have butterflies. But then we have some gender neutral ones as well. We even have a cane charm that works with your air tag. If you have an air tag and you want to add it to your white cane because you want to keep track of it or help you to distinguish yours from a group of others, we have a it's we call it the follow the dot air tag or tracker tag holder cane charm. It's just a silicone ring into which you can slip an air tag, sold separately, of course. You have to get those from Apple. But we can personalize the tracker tag cane charm with a variety of different colors. We can even add an initial letter charm. We have a cane charm that even has a little musical 
It's not a bell exactly. It makes a really soft musical chime. So we call it the celestial chime charm because it makes a heavenly, sweet musical sound. So that's our chain charms collection. And if your gift recipient is a fashionista, we also offer purse charms. So for those of you who don't know what a purse charm is, simply put, a purse charm is like jewelry for your handbag. It's a great way to add a little stylish flair to a purse that's maybe seen better days. Maybe you've got an old battered purse that you've been carrying for years, or maybe you would love to match an outfit. We have purse charms in a rainbow of gorgeous colors. We have Purse charms with a theme. For example, if your gift recipient loves sea life, we have a sea life purse charm. If your recipient loves all things spring, we have spring pastels with a sweet little bird at the bottom that says chirp in Braille. So all of our purse charms are very decorative. We use pearls and gems, opaque gemstones, colorful sparkling crystals, metal beads, and glittery accents. So our cane charms are available in both blingy, girly, embellished, or gender-neutral styles. Our purse charms, of course, are very girly. Think of a purse charm like almost like a charm bracelet, but instead of wrapping it around your wrist, you clip it to the hardware on your handbag and it dangles down and makes a beautiful jingly jangly little sound. We have purse charms with the kitty cat theme. We have purse charms with a doggy theme. We have purse charms that suit every single season. And coming up this holiday, shortly, we're going to launch our brand new Christmas purse charm. So you can keep the spirit of the holidays with you. The purse charm, of course, is going to be green and gold and Christmas red with beautiful enamel Christmas-themed charms dangling from the purse charm. And at the bottom is going to be a little grouping of bells. So for those of you who love jingly jangly Christmas-themed items, you'll be able to order our Touch of Celebration Purse Charm, which will be available in just about a week or so, just in time for the holidays. But then we also offer what you would think of as traditional jewelry items. We have bracelets and necklaces and earrings. And if you're looking to drop a hint to someone who might be buying you a piece of Braille jewelry, our most popular Necklace, bracelet, and earrings are our hearts, of course. Our heart pendant says, I love you. Now, honestly, who wouldn't want to get a heart pendant necklace that says, I love you? But we also have a matching bracelet and a pair of matching heart dangle earrings. And the earrings say always on one earring and forever on the other. And all of our products are available in your choice of metals. We offer jewelry in beautiful golden brass, a warm, glowy copper, 
And of course, we offer stainless steel, which is great for people who have a metal sensitivity because our stainless steel jewelry is all hypoallergenic and allergy free. So you might like to check and see if your recipient has a metal sensitivity. And if so, we have a lot of items that are available in stainless steel. And we even have a few items that are available in sterling silver. And finally, if you're completely stuck, we do offer gift certificates. So if you know your recipient loves elegant insights, braille jewelry, and you'd like to give them the opportunity to choose something that they'll love a gift certificate is always the perfect gift because it's the best you know to me from me gift or you know design your own or choose your own gift so those are examples of a few of the types of items we offer at elegant insights if you have a custom design in mind we do have a full service personalization or custom design service you can take an item that is already on our website and we can modify that for you to change maybe the braille message or maybe we can make it engraving instead of braille or maybe if you have a couple of people to shop for we can offer both braille and engraving with the same item but with different messages and so we have quite a few choices of metals and beads and embellishments. And I would suggest that you give us a call because we can take an existing design, as I said, and modify it. Or we can help you to create a beautiful, one-of-a-kind design that's all your own. So I would strongly recommend you visit our website at elegantinsightsjewelry.com. That's Elegant Insights, and don't forget the S on the end because it's plural. Jewelry is J-E-W-E-L-R-Y, ElegantInsightsJewelry.com. And you can also give us a call. We don't hide behind the website. We love to talk to our customers, so I encourage you to give us a call at 702-605-1265. And if you're window shopping on our website, I invite you to subscribe to our newsletter. We also have a blog, which is all things jewelry education. So we have quite a few features on the website that you might enjoy if you're just shopping. And the last thing I'll mention before I go is that we just launched our 2022 holiday ornament. So if you love the idea of a Braille holiday ornament, we now have three. Our first was a snowflake, our second was a snowman, and the one for 2022 is a beautiful, sparkly reindeer. So thank you, everyone, for listening. I wish all of you a very Merry Christmas, a wonderful, blessed, healthy, happy Thanksgiving filled with all the comforts of heart and home. And I want to thank all of you who have visited Elegant Insights in the last year, those of you who have shopped with us and those of you who may yet. I appreciate you so much. And again, happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Happy New Year.